But I'm dope, Black Detroit. It's Yousef, Bunch of Shakur from Zone 8, Detroit. Revolutionary activist, organizer. Coming today with you, we have 2021, the state of Black Detroit. Detroit is different at the Mama Cool House, December 30th, 2021 at noon. We're coming to have a conversation about leadership, housing, education, justice, economics, access to opportunities, legacy. Black Detroit, what does that mean? Evaluating ourselves, evaluating our history. How do we change this course? Critically looking at our past to determine our present and our future. Peace. See you there. Black Detroit. All right, back in the Detroit is Different podcast studios. Today's guest is someone I've had on once before, I believe, where we told a little bit of the story, but not the full story. This is definitely somebody that's known me my whole life. This is uh, definitely like the, the framework of most of what I do, how I engage in life. Uh, as people say, you got two halves to everything. And the half of my life, my dad. Greg Frazier, Greg Frazier CPA. How are you, Dad? I'm doing great, son. How are you? Good, good. This is unique because I remember the first time, uh, rest in peace to my mom, uh, your wife. Uh, the first time we did this, my mom was like, ah, this should be like this and this should be like that. And why did he wear this? And why did he? She was um, more instrumental in all of this Detroit is different story. But since then, uh, since her passing and so much uh, has happened, but just the seed that was planted and what has become a Detroit is different. And I'm sure from above and everything mm -hmm. a lot is still you know part of the Detroit is different story is the Jan Frazier story and without Jan Frazier you have no Kari Frazier right and definitely our connection is not <laughs> what exists and in so many ways I mean your mother you know my my wife I mean she made me so much of who I am today mm -hmm. now that said I don't know if she would approve of I mean I can see I can hear her now you know Greg mm -hmm. you know you should you should shave Greg why don't you wear a, a, a yeah. white shirt you know or yeah. maybe a suit you know you're still a CPA Greg you're a CPA you so she I can definitely see that. would say that. Oh, I know she would, man. Uh, uh, but but I do know this. She, along with our other ancestors, is very proud of you and what you're accomplishing here. I mean, Thank this you. is, and so am I. I mean, this is this is phenomenal, son. You know, mm -hmm. we really love you for this. You know. Thank you. And, and telling these stories, uh, a lot of my Detroit stories have been curated from that foundation of you all as parents, and even in this house, Mother Deer's house. Um, mm -hmm. In so much of that extension, Clements, uh, it all starts there. But let's let's start this whole story as many people don't notice. This is part of my story in history. Um, your connection to Detroit. How did it all start? How did you end up okay. in Detroit? Okay. Um, well, for me, it was uh, pursuit of the, the traditional dream that uh, brothers and sisters have when they uh, when they graduate from high school and then they go into college and then basically you know you dream of the the quote-unquote good job and uh and in my case i mean this is going back to my uh years at the university of cincinnati um the good job for me was an opportunity to come and work uh, at for General Motors uh, at that time. And we're talking about I started working at uh, the Cadillac division of General Motors back in 1979. Mm -hmm. So uh, so I've been around for a while. And uh, the uh, back then. 
Detroit has really helped me to grow in a consciousness that, you know, I frankly, along with being part of part of the family here, uh, you know, my, my wife's your mother's family has helped me to grow with the consciousness that's uh, that's helped me out in life. And I think Detroit has played a major role in that as well. Uh, not to mm-hmm. say that I weren't with some conscious brothers in, in Cincinnati, mm-hmm. but but Detroit actually it helped. But at that time in 1979, the dream for me was to uh, have the, the, the traditional corner office with uh, at some point with a nice, sexy secretary and to uh, uh, and to work as a computer programmer and then eventually some kind of manager in IT or uh, uh, information uh, technology or information systems back there in the uh, in the 79 and the early 80s. OK, so let's talk a little bit. Before them, your parents or my grandparents, right, uh, right. What's, what's their story? Uh, oh. How did they meet? Uh, what's that connection there in Cincy? Okay. All right. Like a lot of uh, black families, mm-hmm. you know, there are, uh, you know, you can almost say that we're not, uh, uh, we're not monolithic. So the travels in our lives are different. Mm-hmm. Uh you and your sister have been blessed with, in my opinion, to have to to be able to see the uh, different aspects of different families. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that, I'll cut right to the chase. To me, the the Rulak family uh, is uh, that's a, that's a well known, powerful family. I mean, they were even quoted in this uh, the book, "Our Kind of People," and all that. I mean, that Rulak family. You know, not saying that they were super wealthy and all that, but they were well known. You know, judges and lawyers and all of that. Okay, that said, that's one aspect, and that's the family that your that your mother and you and your sister come mm-hmm. from. That's the family I married into. Uh, the other side of that would be, uh, we'll call it the uh, the Fraser family. But mm-hmm. the Fraser family, the the names of Bogan and Chandler come into play. Um, my uh, my mother met my father uh, in in Cincinnati, um, and the. Uh, for lack of a better description, my family is more like the family from the other side of the tracks, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and she was uh, well. Let me let me start it start out this way, you know, to really tell the full story. And and these are things I've shared with you, and I don't mind sharing it with with the public. And and that is, um, my grandmother, for years, kind of kept it a secret that the family that my the 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 man that my grandmother was married to was not the the mother of or was not the father of my mother so years passed but i but there was but if you look at the photographs you can clearly see that my mother was much darker than the rest of uh, her siblings uh, and at a certain point i'm sure that kind of rocked the family a, a bit Mm-hmm. I'm sure it, it caused some turmoil at a certain point yeah, in time. I'm sure that the husband would say, you know, wait a minute. You know, this is, uh, you know, there's there's something that doesn't add up here. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think and understand it's hard to get this information out of your grandmother. But as she as she's she's opening up more. I mean, you know, your grandmother's 91 years old now. Mm-hmm. Um but she's opening it up more uh, and, and, and pretty much has opened up, I think, the full story. And just one day, your great-grandmother just looked at your mother as a teenager and said, you know what? How would you like to meet your father? 
And that initial statement was confusing to even my mother, that what are you talking about? Anyway, they, this is in uh, Little Rock, Arkansas. And they mm-hmm. rode over to what we would still call, what she refers to as the other side of town, the other side of tracks, and met uh, your great grandfather, my grandfather, which mm-hmm. is, uh, his name is Henry Bowman. Mm-hmm. But the, uh, 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 the, uh, your grandmother's name is Lucille Bogan, okay, mm-hmm. and the um, uh, that was kind of a that was obviously a shock to your mother as a teenager. I yeah. mean, to your grandmother as a as a teenager. So, uh, I think that contributed to her being a bit of a rebellious and a bit of uh, uh, you know not wanting to take any stuff from anybody anytime anytime soon. And you know you know the kind of character that she is, the kind of personality sure, she has. I sure do. Right. To this so, day. so to this day, even at ninety one years old. Yeah. So, um, and I also think that 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 kind of gave her a somewhat tainted perspective of 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 men, of mm-hmm. you know just in general. So. So uh, when she, she, so at a young age, she, as soon as she got out of high school, uh, she went, she left Little Rock, Arkansas, and she, she was living it up, man. She went to Kansas City, mm-hmm. uh, Kansas City, Kansas. And at that time, you know, it was, it was a popular place for black folks to go because it was a night. It was a it was a hot party spot. It was a, a place where I guess brothers could get jobs, sisters could get uh, jobs. You know, people were hiring there. But there, but it was a lot of uh, ac- a lot of action there. Mm-hmm. You know, for lack of a better description, I mean, your mother, which your grandmother, wanted to enjoy enjoy life. So yeah. she and her friends, I mean, they 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 party a lot. You know, she worked jobs, but they partied a lot. Mm-hmm. She met a. Uh, she met a man who uh, his name is Charles Frazier, and uh, she was uh, he was he was infatuated by her, and she liked him a lot, and uh, enough to marry him. She was uh, a few years younger than he was, but she liked not only was he tall and handsome, but he was also very personable, very charismatic. Initially, that was the way he was, but as time passed. He became uh, he was he was very jealous, very uh, possessive Mm -hmm. uh, to the point where uh, he was physically abusive. There was one time where even, you know, (laughs) where your mother, your grandmother tells a story of how in front of her friends, uh, they were all in a car and she got out the car. And this was uh, back when it was just becoming popular to have the. uh, the cars without the, you know, the tops and drawing a blank. Yeah, you know, the drop top. Drop top, yeah, mm-hmm. where you wouldn't have, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, so her friend's in a car and he says something like, you know, where you been? Anyway, she she said something smart back to him, you know, like as she had every right to do. He hit her so hard, man, he knocked her out of her shoes. Mm-hmm. Knocked her on the ground out of her shoes in front of her friends, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, he was that much of a nutcase, right? Mm-hmm. Even to the point where, and, and after he did that, my mother, uh, and, you know, your grandmother and her mother, your great grandmother and my grandmother, they said, you know, we, we can't stay here and uh, we're, we're going to move. We're going to get out of here. Anyway, mm-hmm. they left. Uh, 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 wait a minute. I'm backing up. My mother, my uh, mother left Kansas City and went back to Arkansas. Mm-hmm. Charles Frazier was from Arkansas, too. He had family in Arkansas. He left Kansas and came back to Arkansas. 
looking for her. His family in Arkansas warned my grandmother and mother, you know, y'all got to get it. Y'all got to this guy. Y'all got to leave here. Y'all can't stay here because he is crazy. Mm. Right. So about that time, I guess somehow my uh, uh, grandmother reached out to my grandfather who had moved to Cincinnati, uh, who had uh, actually was came out of the service, you know, while his family was in Arkansas and, and he grew up in Arkansas coming out of the service. He went to Cincinnati to work for the Cincinnati Millicron uh, steel machine. This is a steel company, rather company mm-hmm. that uh, uh, made fabricated steel for the auto industry. He actually lined her up with uh, an opportunity, your, your uh, grandmother, to mm-hmm. become a, a nurse, which was really a prestigious thing at that time. Yeah. Um, but to cut right to the chase, the uh, literally when uh, my grandfather uh, took took her in and made provisions for her in Cincinnati, Charles Frazier was going to follow her to Cincinnati. Mm-hmm. Okay, and that was the threat to follow follow her to Cincinnati. My mother didn't really take the opportunity that my grandfather had offered uh, uh, to her because I mean she was still young, you know, she was still doing yeah. her thing. To this day, the thing that stopped Charles Frazier from I think wanting to reestablish this abusive relationship. Just to cut right to the chase is that, you know, she basically ran into somebody crazier than him. Mm-hmm. And that was my father, <laughs> your grandfather, <laughs> Don Scott. Uh-huh. Don Scott uh, met her in Cincinnati. She, uh, uh, she, the way he tells the story is she wrote him a letter. They, they start, they met through bowling. Bowling is was a real popular thing. It's still it's mm-hmm. less popular with black folks. I guess it's less popular in America right now. Yeah. Uh, but back then, you know, during the uh, the fifties, man, you know that was uh, that was the big deal. Forties and fifties, bowling was what was happening. Mm-hmm. You know, bowling and partying and drinking beer and then partying some more. That was what was going on. So, uh, and and your uh, grandfather was an outstanding bowler. Yeah, very competitive. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, my grandfather, your father, right. uh, was. Extremely competitive. I mean, he was inducted into the Bowling Hall of Fame. That's right. That's um, right. Don first, Scott. One of the first black professional bowlers, um, period. Yep. Right. Yeah. That's right. As a matter of fact, what we'll do is I'm, we'll refer him, him as Don Scott. My mother will refer to her as Emma Jean, so we'll keep it yeah. in sync like that. Your great-grandmother would be Lucille. Mm-hmm. So, um, so she... She got with him, and I guess word got back to Frazier to basically back off. I don't know how that went down. I'm, I'm, I'm improvising here because I don't have the full story there. All mm-hmm. I know is the uh, pursuit from him stopped once she got with your uh, grandfather. Yeah. Right? Now, that said, I mean, I, your grandfather was not a saint. You know, mm-hmm. he, was, he was a nice guy. He was wonderful to her. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he, was, uh, 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 he respected her. He really loved her a lot. Okay, Uh, but, you know, he was also into some criminal stuff. Mm. All right. So uh, what he what he was involved in was uh, uh, a interstate car theft ring is where he got in trouble. But your grandfather, extremely smart, very smart guy. 
Uh, as a matter of fact, when the FBI was when they were looking for him and they paid a visit to uh, your grandmother, to uh, to Emma Jean and in an interview. And this is when she was pregnant with me and they were looking for him. Uh, they told they told her that, uh, you know, this guy has an IQ of 165. <laughs> so he's. Uh, you know, so they, they that was something that, you know, she said, well, he is pretty smart. And incidentally, you know, uh, Imogene is pretty smart, too. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, so anyway, he wasn't smart enough to, to not get caught. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but also, as we always say, um, even in the opportunities, as I call it, you know, crime or the street economy right. uh, exists in the black community as there are not as many opportunities afforded to us as black people, especially black men at that time and even in times today. So uh, what we look at as legal and illegal, especially in the premise of America, being that America was is everything about America is is from something immoral and illegal. That's right. <laughs> under what American laws are today. It's always kind of like pot calling the kettle of anyone into right. what I call street life, depending upon where your moral compass is and who, quote unquote, it harms. If it's uh, mm-hmm. I look at something like that through insurance agencies and things like that, that is a as we call it, victimless crime. Mm-hmm. Uh, if the victim is the bank, uh, corporations, uh, entities where uh, that are already connected to this structure of white supremacy that are that that limits opportunities for black people already. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that the crimes where you do have victims, like the sickness of something like Charles Frazier um, attacking my grandmother, that right mm-hmm. there, yeah, that that's that's where the morality and the crime and the legality need to line up where that man needs to be taken away but then I think about the savviness of my grandfather making an opportunity I don't see that the same way well yeah and we both know the story I mean your grandfather I mean fast forward and we'll bounce back kind of wrap that part of it up he was uh, he became a very prominent businessman in Cleveland very much so I mean to the point where he could have an audience with the governor the governor would be calling him you know Mm -hmm. I think the governor and his family along with uh, we'll call it our Cleveland family they went to Africa together you know uh but that 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 road to get there i mean it was uh not only because not not only you know people say i was hard work but no it's because your 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 grandfather was smart as hell right Mm -hmm. uh but back then yeah he did get caught and he was uh um he uh uh served his time and just to before i even get into what happened while he was in prison just some of the stories that he would tell me and i sure i'm sure he shared these stories stories with you it was um uh the, the stories of how he obtained his first nightclub, you know, mm-hmm. in Cleveland. I'm sure he, he talked about that. Uh, this is one of the stories that he doesn't like to tell that your uh, grandmother tells is when they were in Blue Ash, uh, Ohio. And this is, you know, this is an outskirts of, I guess, maybe between it was, I guess it's really closer to Cincinnati as opposed to Cleveland. Your uh, folks were in a fight. Uh, Blue Ash was kind of like a sort of like a farm town, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of farmland. This is going back way again. This is back in the late 50s, I guess. And during that, these guys were drinking and fighting and it was a lot of ruckus down the street. Mm-hmm. And and it was disturbing uh, your uh, the relatives of and I guess they would have been the equivalent of your great aunt and uncle and and my mother and, uh, uh, you know, uh, and Don, your grand, your grandfather, they were staying, you know, visiting the family. That was that was a way to get out of the, the inner city and to mm-hmm. get away and to get get into some uh, some uh, farmland, fresh air, you know, to get out of all the chaos of the city. But during that fight, 
Uh, but these folks were fighting and drinking down the street. So uh, your mother tells a story of uh, how she first really began to understand the mind of Don and how Don's the nicest guy in the world around her. You know, nicest guy, you know, you met him, you know how yeah. Don is. Ego yeah. is big as hell, but you know, nice guy, right? And he went down there and basically uh, took out his pistol. Mm-hmm. And told him, you know, I don't know where, where you niggas are going to go, but y'all got to leave around from around here, you know. Uh, and he said it in such a tone where everybody around him knew that, you know, that was the message. That time was to leave. Time to leave. Yeah. Then when he came back to uh, to your grandmother, and she said, what happened? What did you do? He said, I don't know. I just talked to him, you know. But as he was saying that, she could see that the, the pistol that he had was on his uh, on his leg, his little ho- uh, leg holster or whatever. So, sometimes those are conversations that my granddad may have with you. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yep, yep. And even in, in Cincinnati, what uh, mm-hmm. your grandmother, uh, your, your grandfather, since he mm-hmm. was really great at bowling, great mm-hmm. bowler, and he knew the bowling business. He began to learn the whole business of bowling. Yeah, he ran a couple bowling alleys he himself. He did. He yeah. did. But prior to that, and he probably should have had these bowling alleys when he was much, much younger. But because of, in my opinion, your opinion, we know the story, yeah. systemic racism, guys with minds like that didn't have an opportunity to do the things that they could have been doing. True. So they have to work around and deal with what they have. Mm-hmm. What he made, he made a commitment to one of the Jewish owners of uh, uh, one of the bowling alleys there in Cincinnati who had a competitor down the street. Uh, he said, if you let me manage this bowling alley, I'll pretty much double the people that come in here. I'm going to increase your patrons to come in into this bowling alley. Yeah. And uh, and so the guy, the owner of the bowling alley uh, said, OK, we'll do that. He basically turned over management to your your grandfather. Now, the story has it. And this is a story that your grandfather didn't tell me. This is a story that your your grandmother told me mm-hmm. was that. Within a few weeks after he started managing the bowling alley, the bowling alley down the street had a really bad fire mm-hmm. to the point where they had to move. Mm-hmm. Patrons doubled. Yeah. So now, now hey, like we say, I, I don't know what it is in it. What's in what and how things go? But oh, yeah, really? my grandfather was very um, cunning. Uh, savvy, smart, brilliant uh, when I think about before he passed and as time went and I'm kind of fast forwarding the story just Mm -hmm. due to um, at the time, you know, the the rift of his presence in your life at at one point in time, I think I probably had a closer relationship with my grandfather than than you had with your father. So, uh, but but with it, I kind of want to get back to your Detroit story in this too, but um, he was very savvy. I, I think every one of his business deals, uh, he he looked at racism as it's going to be a part of the business. That's right. And that's what was so unique. And it almost gives me like my matter of fact attitude towards like this is just how things are. So it would be things like, um, uh, let's say like a new a new club opens up in downtown Cleveland and they want to open up on the docks where it's predominantly white clubs around Cleveland. Uh, Granddad would approach some of the old Italian and Jewish club owners and say, Hey, I'm, you know, I'm running out of business. I'm running out of money because, you know, this new club's about to open up. I mean, what could, you know, I I don't know how I'm going to make this happen to compete. 
And he just knew that the racism of the Jewish and Italian club owners was like, we do not need black people in and around downtown Cleveland over here that's segmented off of white Cleveland. Mm -hmm. So let's go on and give Scott, my grandfather, Don Scott, Mm -hmm. let's go on and put a package together of thousands of dollars so he can run the radio promo maybe add to his club so they want to go back to the neighborhood that's segmented for black people he would use this type of business savvy all the time like it's almost like he looked at every business decision he made as like okay i know this is what white people want for black people so what are the competitive advantages knowing that they have this blind spot so focused on racism of not wanting to be around black people or not wanting to empower black people? How can I present myself as the black person that already understands this system, but pull and extrapolate all the resources I need from them? It's like, you know, uh, I'll go sometimes to Cleveland and I can look at the notes because um my grandmother, uh, Grandma Vale, his wife, like she still keeps a lot of his business notes. Uh, Uncle D, uh, your brother, my <laughs> uncle Don D. Scott, uh, sometimes will look at this stuff too. And like it, just his notes about like they will want, uh, it, it's like, it's like you, 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 you know, you, you see the advantage of the, the, the the blindness and commitment of white people and white supremacy wanting to exist in this space and say, I can exploit this because they're so committed to it, they will lose money in effect to just not be around black people or not to offer a black person somewhat of a competitive advantage. Every business deal, it seems like he functioned with this in mind. It, mm-hmm. it just, it's... As some people would say, like, this is cruel, but it's genius in the same distorted reality of being a black man doing business in America. That's right. And actually, and actually, it's interesting you bring that up. A lot of the other cultures, and you mentioned the uh, the Italians and, we, and the Jews, and it was the uh, or the Jewish people. It was uh, uh, it was his uh, his interactions with the Italians in Cleveland mm-hmm. that led to his uh, involvement with the inner interstate uh, car theft ring. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was uh, that same relationship with the Italians that that actually kept Don King, you know, the, the, yeah, the boxing the promoter, promoter yeah. alive. Yeah. Because Don King back then was a numbers man. Mm-hmm. You know, he's running numbers. And Don King did something really stupid. He like uh, mm-hmm. reneged or cheated or did something with the money as far as numbers. Yeah. And they were going to take him out. Yeah. The only reason they didn't take him out is because Don Scott spoke in his behalf. Don yeah. Scott kept Don King alive. And, and, and many others. I mean, George, if you're if you're a black uh, business person, uh, Mr. Oliver Ragsdale that connects here through the car center, like if you're a black business person uh, that was associated with any form of business, I would say probably from the the 80s well really maybe the 70s 80s 90s you would have had to connect with my grandfather kind of to function Mm -hmm. in any form of doing business because it was just like that like Mm -hmm. you know so when people ask me about how do i come up with these creative ideas and what it is that premise kind of comes from my grandfather and then a lot in you. So let's kind of get back to your Detroit story. Well, I want to tell one story. Yeah, we'll do okay. that. One story because this really kind of kind of crystallizes, uh, I think, a lot of the, the the concept of your grandfather, the way he thought. Yeah. Uh, 
a kind of judo to operate, given that you do have systemic racism out here, given yeah. that it is what it is, as you pointed out. It's almost like how do you use that? If, how do you look for those opportunities to actually use the sickness of that to your advantage? And it was during the, I guess it would have been the 60s when folks started rioting, when it became, uh, quote unquote, a very dangerous place, uh, somewhat dangerous place for white folks to be in parts of Cleveland. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's how you, you, your father, I mean, your grandfather obtained that nightclub, you know, the red carpet lounge in uh, on Euclid Avenue in Cleveland. Uh, the problem he had, he didn't have any parking. Meanwhile, this owner, a uh, Jewish guy across the street, had all this space. He fenced off, you know, all this, all this parking, potential parking space fenced off, right? Had it fenced off. Don talked to him, negotiated with him and said, look, I want to, if I can't buy the property, at least, at least let me, let me uh, uh, pay you use, a fee yeah, to let me, use Let me rent it. He wouldn't budge because I don't know what his plans were, but he wouldn't. I don't know what the Jewish guy was thinking, but he wouldn't budge. He just don't want to do business with black folks. It, may, it could be that. He, he may have wanted, who knows, might want to squeeze him out of the club, you know, whatever. Who yeah. knows what the story is? But here's yeah. the way the story ended. Uh, your grandfather pulled that fence up. He and his folks, his thug friends or whatever, they dumped that fence on that guy's front lawn. Mm -hmm. Got the message and he made a deal with your father, your, with your grandfather after that. Yeah. And that was an example of just uh, that's one that's one example. You have to know when to play what game. But uh, as much as sometimes it was street, my my grandfather. <laughs> so as we talk about stories of my grandfather, this is so funny. <laughs> so. On our visits to Cleveland when we were kids, um, you know, because my granddad is old school. He's traditional. So he would take my sister would go like spend a day with Grandma Vale. So they like go to the mall and go yep. shopping. And it's like, man, that'd be fun. And he's like, the boy coming with me. And it's like, man, what are we about to do? <laughs> <laughs> I usually would sit. So, so a couple of those trips. I sat in arbitration after arbitration after arbitration after arbitration. So I'm like, you know, you can imagine the mind of 11 year old Kari Frazier. So you wonder how I'm thinking like I'm thinking now, because I'm I'm 11 sitting in arbitration after arbitration because it's like the boy coming with me. So if you don't know what arbitration is, it's basically like a step before what would become a legal case and we sit and we would I would sit with his attorney I would sit with his CPA and he would just orchestrate how we were going to deal with this and and you know I would watch people because he owned a nightclub so right, you right. know different people coming in with neck braces people coming in with <laughs> with uh you know in wheelchairs people coming in with crutches it's like loss like he almost like set certain days out the week this is the day I'm dealing with lawsuits yep I and and he and I would watch the way he engaged and interacted with his attorney. And I'm thinking to myself, like, damn, you like, like you can, you know what I'm saying? Because the 11 year old me is still thinking court is a whole lot more like, you know, um, law and order or something like the premise of like, you know, if you need to talk to your attorney, it's like you almost kind of need some legal information. And it's like. You know, granddad, it's like, look, I ain't paying that nigga shit. I'll pay you three times as much as what he wants <laughs> to not pay him shit. And I, was, I had to pull him to the side one time. I was like, OK, all right. Wh why wouldn't you do that? He was like, look, this is how it goes, because sometimes grandson, you're going to learn that if if word gets out here that I'm the guy that you can sue. Everybody going to sue me, <laughs> you know, <laughs> so and he's like, but we still going to work. Look out for the family, though, because I know he got some kids. 
So we're going to make sure that that's taken care of and your grandma probably going to worry about all of that. So in the same way of like, I'm not about to let you exploit me. I recognize this slip and fall, but you're not about to call 1-800, you know, um, get rid of Don Scott's nightclub. We're going to make sure your family's taken care of, but you're not about to exploit me either. This is like the nuances, as you say, of like how to conduct and even stay and even build and develop that social capital mm-hmm. as you, you, it it's it's unique. And, you know, at 11, it's like, I, I would rather have done something else. But now at my age now, it's like, oh. This is how you can still function. This is how you can be under pressure. And you've been in some of these same moments, too. This is how you can function right. in under pressure. And really back to, like you say, it's the judo of using that against you right. by being the person in the hood, dealing with people that most people wouldn't want to be with, mm-hmm. dealing with the the black customer and clientele that certain people would turn away and walk away from. Mm-hmm. The competitive advantage is you have a a, 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 a a freedom to be more creative working within this stance because I guarantee if 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 granddad had that club down you know off the docks you know next to like some of the more premier white clubs and stuff mm-hmm. like that then probably some of those white clubs would have paid the attorney for the people to sue him. Oh yeah, I would have sent people would, in there he too. Smart to know he probably wouldn't have. Uh, that wouldn't have been a sustainable in, uh, enterprise yeah. down there. Yeah, you know what's interesting is he is, uh, uh, yeah, in so many ways that 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 magnanimous side. But now I'm going to get into the side where you know you mentioned. You know, let's face it, you know, for a while, you know, I, I hated my father. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And, and that story is when while he was in federal penitentiary, uh, you could the letters that he wrote to your grandmother, you could see that he was yeah. he was vulnerable. I mean, he was he called her little pudding. He little pudding is what he called her. And he mm-hmm. missed her and all of that. But meanwhile, you know, your grandmother uh, had uh, understand uh, to me the way women thought back then, you know, because right now you have a lot of women are very independent and I don't know how much time, I don't know, are we cutting in on a lot of time or, you know? No, I mean, we can keep going. I, I want to get to the Detroit story. Oh, We're like 30 uh, minutes in, but this is interesting, so yeah. continue. He, uh, her thoughts were, and I can, you know, I, I, I can We only, can't get into the I full ideology, head, but right. my grandmother moved on. She moved on. She basically met uh, another a guy man. who was, to me, very much the opposite of Don Scott. Very, very so. successful real estate uh, 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 businessman, mm-hmm. uh, big time Republican, so light skinned, you know, he could pass for white. Mm-hmm. You know, you've seen, you know, you've yeah. seen George. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, George has since passed away, like most of these people were talking about, mm-hmm. except for your grandmother. And, uh, and 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 basically had uh, she had a daughter, my sister, yep. you know, your aunt Darla. Aunt Darla. Yep. And that devastated your grandfather. Like many men would be. Like, yeah, he's in prison mm-hmm. and he's in love with her. And they, he's writing these letters about their plans, what they're going to do and getting married. And and she's, you know, she's got another, she's got a second child by another man. Right. Yeah. Uh, and. uh Basically, when he came out of prison, I don't know if they even had any, many, if they even spoke to each other, because from there he went to Cleveland. Yep. And then your grandmother stayed in, in Cincinnati. Mm-hmm. And he met Val. He met our Cleveland family. And that, yeah. that began to establish our Cleveland family. You know, your sister Avis and, uh, well, and Your D, sister Avis, yeah, my, my sister, Avis, yeah, your aunt Avis, uh, your, my your uncle D, D yeah. uh, cousins Kenya, yeah, Kayla. Right, yeah. right, right. Yep. right. When I was six years old, he came to uh, 
came to pay me a visit. Had never seen my father up until that point. I mean, even, you know, when I was born, I mean, he was he was in prison. Mm -hmm. So six years old, I'm excited to see him. He and Vel, they come, uh, you know, his wife now. He had he had actually this was after he, there's, they did a feature story on him as a successful businessman and a bowler in Ebony Magazine, which yeah. the magazine's not around anymore, but it was a feature story. So I'm like, man, I'm ready to meet this guy that, you know, my father, who's, who's in this magazine, too, you know. And, and then they came. My father uh, t came to our little home, and this was on Alaska Avenue and uh, in Cincinnati. And while he took me in the other room to ask me things like, you know, hey, what do you what do you want to do? What do you what do you see yourself doing? And I told him and I showed him some things where I had a microscope, a microscope. Mm -hmm. And I was showing him the microscope thing. Never seen my father before. This is the first time he saw me. Meanwhile, and I know Vel didn't like to talk about this and neither not, neither does uh, your grandmother, not either. Neither yeah. of your grandmother. And, I, like and I really about it. and because of that, they it's uh, and I don't even really want to go so deep, but well, gonna, it, it was not they didn't come to an agree. Right. There was Let's they would say that it was a back were, and forth. A lot yes. of lot. They were moving a lot of furniture in the other room. It was, uh, a lot uh, of, yes. Yeah. It a was lot of back argument, and forth. Right. Yes. And I think the, in a nutshell, I think the argument was, you know, basically, I think she was accusing you, uh, accusing Emma Jean, your grand, your grandmother in Cincinnati, of you know shaking them down for money, you know, yeah. uh, and uh, uh, and you know, so there was a lot of back and forth there. Meanwhile, your grandfather appeared to be above the fray by mm -hmm. just being with me. And I never forget, he promised me. I said, he says, what do you want? What's the way you got a microscope? What do you? I said, I want a telescope. I want a telescope, Dad. And I felt mm -hmm. weird saying that, but he was my father, you know. So I'm gonna get you a telescope, mm -hmm. right? But later on, I found out that what they had come to do, they wanted to take me back to Cleveland. Yeah. And and my mother, later on, she asked me after they had left, uh, well, do you want to go and live with your father? And she told me, because I don't remember this at all, but she said, you said you did not want to go, that you want to stay with me, which mm -hmm. makes sense. A son wanting to, you know, I, this is the person I've been with. I yeah, with, you didn't you know, not, I don't know have anything a about, frame of reference. Yeah. I don't know anything about Don Scott, right? Mm -hmm. But what he said to her, and I don't know if it was by phone, it must have been by phone because they had left. If... Uh, if I can't take him back to Cleveland, I don't want to have anything to do with that knot-headed nigga. Mm -hmm. She told me that. She said, I just want you to know the truth. Because she, she never spoke bad about Don. She yeah. always tried to be truthful, right? Mm -hmm. She actually praised him more uh, with the stories. Because, you know, it's plenty yeah. to talk about. But that, Kari, that hurt. I can that imagine. Hurt, man. You know, at yeah. six years old with all the other things I had in my mind about. Mm -hmm. But what really hurt worse, he kept his word on that. He didn't do anything. Mm -hmm. Ever, ever. So when I came here to Detroit and I met your mother, one of the reasons why your mother is really like an angel of a person coming here, mm -hmm. I had nothing to do with my father. Nothing. And she knew that. The times that she would bring it up, well, what about your father, Greg? And, you know, I don't know what I would. She got the reading and the message that he don't want to have anything to do with the with his father. Mm -hmm. But she also had, well, let me just say it this way. The next thing I knew, one day out of the blue, she calls me on the phone. And you and your sister and Janella, they're in Cleveland with my father. Because mm -hmm. you want this, that was your first time meeting yeah. your, uh, your grandfather. 
But when I came here to Detroit, coming out of coming out of college, understand as a black man what you know. There are different things that drive us. I think uh, Janella and I, we we raised you and your sister, where ideally strong family strong family values and just mm-hmm. knowing that you're coming from a nurturing spot. And, and wait, then, and wait, when mm-hmm. you say Janella and I, I'm, I'm going to say, I think my mom had, if, if this is like a, like a, like a team, my mom was like Michael Jordan of the family dynamic. That's and absolutely you were, true. Yeah. You were way more like, As a matter uh, of fact, yeah, let's keep it real. You're right. Let's keep it real. Was way more yeah, like I don't want to like, let me not sugarcoat my role. Yeah. Cause that wasn't my, yeah, she was like, she was definitely the Michael Jordan. Yes. She was definitely the LeBron James. I yes. was like a, a Pippin at best, yes, yes, at best, yes, right? Yes. Uh, and you know, that, and it's amazing how uh, that that's a different kind of strength that your mm-hmm. mother brought. She wasn't she wasn't bombastic or anything like that. No. She just had a quiet force, man. She was just, it, the stuff that she would do, you said, oh, there's no way I'm going to do that. Bam, you ended up doing it, you know. Mm-hmm. She was powerful like that and just knew how to do those things. I, when you guys called me from Cleveland, at first I was angry. Mm-hmm. But then as I, I said, you know what? This makes sense. You know, like that Don Scott there, that's not the same Don Scott that that was around when Man. I was a kid, you know. Yeah. Uh, so uh, but what that did with me growing up, I didn't have that nurturing atmosphere, that nurturing thing. You ever heard the song Johnny Cash, Boy Named Sue? Yeah. Boy Named Sue, what drove that character? Mm-hmm. The fact that his father named him Sue. Mm-hmm. Was kind of a so it was it was the you, people don't like to say the word hatred or bitterness, but it was that that actually drove me. Mm-hmm. That was actually I'm not saying I was obsessed and it burned in me, but you know that that did cause some some issues. But that was sort of like a driving. I would be in scenarios where, like, let's say if I'm selling books or something, you know, I was uh, selling books while I was in college. I'd be in the middle of Augusta, Georgia, someplace selling books. Potentially, like, it's hot as hell. You know, people are slamming doors in my face and all that. And as opposed to tapping into something that would say, man, you know, you got your family behind you. I would tap into something, you know, man, that son of a bitch that was my father. They didn't think I'm going to be successful. Fuck him. I'm going to be successful. I'm going to mm-hmm. close some sales. That was the thing that would drive me. That was the drive that brought me to Detroit. Mm-hmm. It was, and, and so you got to understand in some crazy way. Don Scott, your father kind of put something in me, like the boy named Sue, Mm -hmm. to like, hey, you're going to succeed because of the way that I treated you. And then also, as as we talk and unpack, this is my family story, your story, uh, my family story. This is a common black story because this same that same pattern is the story of my grandfather. That's true. And, and, And his pain towards his father. You know, um, and, and family in general, as as my grandfather, Don Scott, grew up um, very much uh, like formal education, like stopped very early and much on his own. Like uh, I, I can parallel, like I say, like James Brown, almost to my grandfather, like he had a. Um, Man, I feel we're, we're revealing so much about Don. You know, I feel it's like incriminating, but he had a. Maybe that's what it was meant to be that way. He had a. Uh, he had a. So I guess that would be my. That would be my great great aunt, ran a numbers and brothel like like a street. Let's just call it a street establishment of the time, <laughs> and that's who who that's who took 
after him because that's the only one in his family he kind of connected to as his family was broken up at a very young age. And most of the savviness of what he learned learned in business, the same way James Brown kind of grew up in that brothel mm. street environment. And Richard Pryor yeah, grew up Richard in that Pryor. brothel right. street environment. My grandfather grew up in that brothel numbers street environment, seeing a, a, a black woman engage and interact with uh, men at their most, uh, you know, off kilter space. And, and, and sustain something from that. Like this is, you know, so so like these stories of like, you know, what sticks to you, what you see, how you move. I mean, he was really on his own maybe at the age of 13, 14, which another one of those types of people that like, you know, it's like X, you know, you assume their age is this. But in reality, who knows what my age is because right. I kind of been on my it's own travels. my whole life. Mm hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, but still, like you say, high brilliance. So as we get into your Detroit story, you're here, Cadillac. Right. Um, I, I often talk about General Motors as I've uh, highlighted this in another Cincinnati to Detroit guy, the Charlie Beckham story that I had on Detroit is different. 1979, I, it's hard to put into perspective that what... General Motors was to a, to not just America, but the world. Right. And definitely Michigan. And General Motors, like the way that everyone thinks of what Amazon is now, multiply that times five. Yep. That's how big General Motors was. General Motors was so big that world leaders would come to Detroit to meet at General Motors before they would go to the White House. Sometimes presidents would have to, like a Gerald Ford would have to come to Detroit to meet with you know, like a, you know, some some world leader from, you know, God knows where, mm -hmm. because that's how much money General Motors was generating for the nation, for that's the right. world. It was yeah, right. it was huge. And you're in working in Cadillac. Cadillac is the um, premier uh, division in cars. It's like, you know, my, my time at Walsh, which I followed your footsteps. And, mm -hmm. You know, if, if people don't I have an idea of like a lot of the foundation of what marketing is was built from the idea of the auto industry, but specifically General Motors. The idea is we're going to start you here. We're going to start you with this type of car, meaning like yep. you'll start off with a, 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 a what, what what's like a low level General Motors car. A, uh, I started out with a, 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 a Buick um, uh, Man, I ended up with the uh, Oldsmobile, but I started out with something less than the Oldsmobile. Yeah, so you start yeah. with this, then you move up to this, then you move up to this, then you end up at Cadillac. Like, Cadillac was right. a sign of prominence, hence, even to, to today, like, black mm -hmm. folks in the hood, like, especially older guys in the hood, like, you know, you know <laughs> right. now I think foreigns are more sexy, but the Cadillac was a sign of, like, you've made it, it a right. success, and you're now working for this yeah what cadillac was going on division. in your mind just general motors cadillac division this is heavy yeah well understand you 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 look at it you were looking at it from a, a global perspective and i'm gonna i'm gonna tie it down to just the, the 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 perspective of black folks yeah if you were if you had a job at any of the auto industries mm -hmm. that was like hey you are you are it but then have a job at general motors you know, that was and then to have a white collar job back there in the uh, early 80s. And then I started in 1979, July of 1979. 
my folks in Cincinnati, that was like, uh, man, that's just another planet. Because, you know, I mean, most, let's face it, back then, most people didn't go to college, right? Uh, mm-hmm. and, if, and if you did, it wasn't in anything related to, like, business, IT, and quantitative analysis, which is what, you know, my focus. But IT, computers, uh, that was another world. So, so for me, it was, uh, again, my dream. And I already talked to you about what I was, you know, man, to be in like the glass office, the carpeted floors, you know, the uh, uh, working at a uh, working uh, with uh, computers and mm-hmm. and all of that, that uh, that to me was I was infatuated by that. Yeah. And the first few months I was uh, that infatuation was there. Yeah, you were but, a black person climbing the corporate ladder, and and for the long, I remember, I remember, uh, and I and I played the role to a hilt, man. I was uh, not only had suits. I don't know if you even know what wingtip shoes are. I bought wingtip shoes. This is mm-hmm. the shoes that that old fashioned white guys wear. But yeah. it was a lot of wingtip shoes that I know. A lot of people at GM. I'm talking about the guys in suits. Yeah. They wear wingtip shoes. So I bought wingtip shoes. You know. Uh, and it was when, um, and it was actually because of uh, General Motors, of course. You know the the cola parties that they would have. That's how I met. That's how I met your mother. So. Okay, a cola party. So people don't know a cost of living adjustment party. So this is right, right. The the culture of the culture of the auto manufacturers, which at one point the big four, uh, American Motor Company as well, and the Romney family. Um, it permeated so much throughout Detroit that people knew when you would get a cost of living adjustment, like people would get raises and then promoters would throw parties mm-hmm. for cola. Like That's right. Cost of living adjustment party. That's where you met my mom. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, if you think about it, that was a way where black folks that were making money in the auto companies mm-hmm. uh, uh, because of the negotiations of the unions to yeah. negotiate a, ra- a raise and pay. That raise and pay not only hit the blue collar workers, it, they extended that to the white collar workers. Yeah. And that means it was a lot of money that would be proliferating throughout the community. That was yeah. money. That money would hit the clubs, but also people that that would have rent parties and things like that. People mm-hmm. that weren't even maybe not be working at all or they're working someplace where they can like if you could throw a good cola party you go make a lot of money yeah. right and you're right it was in a it was in a, uh, 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 in a in the basement of one of the real nice homes someplace on the west side of Detroit uh, that uh, that's where I met uh, Janella at, at, at one of the cola parties and it was the brothers that I was hanging with at Cadillac that uh, uh, that really began to hit me to all these things you know because you know I'm from Cincinnati so yeah. they said I was and they kind of looked at you like you were country in the first place yeah and not yeah. going looked at me like I was country they would constantly say <laughs> including Janella when I first met her you know yeah you man you sound country country you know and yep. I'm like man I don't sound country you know but yeah yep. I remember saying something I don't say now but every now and then you know I would say dang a lot mm-hmm. dang you know dang was something people said in Cincinnati they still yeah. say that you know but anyway yeah. um what uh uh what I begin to notice at Cadillac and this is something that is symptomatic of all I think black folks in corporate America and and that is I remember one of the brothers and most and, and I was I was maybe one out of every five. Anyway, I, there was only one other brother I could think of that actually had a, a, a degree in, in, you know, college degree. Mm-hmm. A lot of these brothers were smart brothers, but they they got there. They learned I.T. information technology from being in the service. 
doing things in the Army. And then mm-hmm. I guess getting out and picking up the skills, you know. But Derek, real smart database brother, you know, older than, older than me, was that showing me the ropes at Cadillac. I remember Chuck Holmes and some of those other guys. But I remember Derek walking me down the aisle at Cadillac and pointing to those same those glass windows, those office windows that were you, you, basically, if you can't envision the office setting, you have cubicles in the center of mm-hmm. an office setting, and people sit in the cubicles. I was one of the cubicle sitters, you know. You know the, mm-hmm. the, the like you've seen guys. this in uh, in the uh, in the movie Office Space. Yeah, and right, and, and right. then also you know as people talk about th- this is another thing in psychology of the way that. Uh, Schools were structured and and developed at one point in time to mimic what industry and plant work was like. That's why the bales and Mm -hmm. a lot of buildings look similar. If you look at old factories and you look at old schools, they're like hand in hand, like Central High School for even with this event, like remodeling. It still has the design of like what an old factory would look like. Uh, And. And the psychology of some of the, the the workplace environment was built to want you to see that glass window. Yes. The same way that the psychology of most people incarcerated, you know, they, they create the in many prisons. You have a window, but you can't see out of it. So you knew light was coming in, but you can't see out. It's yeah. it's 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 certain uh, ergonomics and spacing that the psychology that is going to place you in certain places just by being there. And that psychology, good point, good point, son. That psychology is critical to the functioning of a capitalistic system. Yeah. Because it's so, they want that thought embedded in your mind. So uh, Cadillac, the Cadillac uh, 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 layout, mm-hmm. you, had a, you had an office for the uh, white collar folks, and that office fit the template that you just described. And I would send the cubicles on in the center, Large, a lot, a large space for cubicles, and then along the side, along the side, you know, where the people with windows were the executives that had the glass windows. They could see what 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 little what what it was worth. You know, the view. You know, Clark in Michigan. I mean, what kind of view can you have there? But they still had the windows. And then, of course, the 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 higher up or the most powerful executives had the corner offices, yeah. right? And then, yeah, of course, higher upstairs too, yeah. right? And uh, and as Derek is walking me down the aisle. What he started saying was, you see that guy in there, there's uh, Dave Weaver, you know. I said, yeah, yeah. I said, I said, yeah, I remember he started just like you did. That was a few years ago. And I trained him. And then he would walk further. And I said, Derek Weaver. I said, yeah, I said, he's a pretty smart guy, thinking to myself. Then he walked a little further and he pointed somebody else out. I said, yeah, so-and-so. Another white guy, you know. Uh, yeah, I remember him coming in. He didn't know anything about computers. I trained him. I got him up to speed where he learned the system. The uh, invent- they, they didn't call it manufacturing then. They called it inventory control system. Mm. And so as he's walking, and I'm thinking to myself, damn, why doesn't Derek have a glass office? Right? I never met. That was the first, that was my first eye-opening thing. You know, mm-hmm. I'm like, and and the other thing is, when I would go to lunch initially, I didn't hang with uh, the brothers, with Derek and Chuck and Phil. You know, uh, uh, you know, it was the young college folks like me coming in. We would go, and there was a hierarchy in the lunchroom. Mm-hmm. You had the executives would go all the way. It was a place all the way in the back, closed doors, 
where if you walked in there, it was a setting like going into a fancy restaurant, kind of like being in uh, like uh, some place like the Detroit Athletic Clubs, one of yeah. their uh, fancy places where you can eat. You know, uh, the uh, you know how they have the the carpet and the brick. You know, mm-hmm. it would be the equivalent of the brick. You know, mm-hmm. uh, but then. There was the rest of the white collars. That was kind of the middle of the lunchroom. The food was pretty cool. Not like eating, you know, you could order stuff. You could order your food for lunch within the executive area. The white collar area, it was it was uh, uh, buffet, you know, mm-hmm. but nice food buffet. Yep. Then you had a big space for blue collar. Mm-hmm. The blue collar is where you go and you eat. It was a buffet, too. You know, it was noisy. You know, people coming in and out. You could actually hear some of the noise coming from the uh, factory and all of that. And uh, the college guys like me, we would mm-hmm. eat in the, the middle part. Yeah. But as I started hanging with the brothers, you know, the Fields, the Derricks, the Chucks and the, some of the cute sisters there, you know, they all ate with the blue collar folks. Mm-hmm. Not because... They had to. It's because they wanted to. Because psychologically, they were more at home with those people. And believe it or not, it was more fun. Higher up the hierarchy, I think I ate in the executive uh, uh, lunchroom maybe twice. Mm -hmm. And, man, it was so stiff and uncomfortable to me in there, you know, because it was all about airs. And then, you know, like, you know, you feel like, damn, you know, I I see some other brothers in here, but, you know, not that many. You know, I mean, like maybe, what, 1%, you know? Yeah. So that began to weigh on me as well. And one day I just asked God, uh, I asked Phil, another guy, who was also instantly a great, these, all these guys could bowl, mm-hmm. great bowler. Um, I said, yeah, man, I asked, I said, why is it that you guys are training these, training these white boys, man, and they get, uh, and they got, and now, you, and now you report to them. I seemed like, you know, I wouldn't put up with that bullshit, man. I'd be out of here, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. And i never forget, Phil saying to me, yeah, you know, that's that's what you think now. But you're working in General Motors, man. They pay you well. You get a discount on cars. You got the best health insurance in the world. You know, what happens is you get locked in. What you going to do once you have when you once you start having your children, once you start when you get married, and you have children and you see the benefits and you see the money you make. And you see the discounts and not to mention, no, you work for General Motors, man. The people in the neighborhood, your family, they know you work for GM. They would say you must be out of your mind to leave General Motors. So they lock you in, Mm -hmm. you know, your lifestyle, the the car note, car notes, Mm -hmm. the house note. The one to set money aside in college, the health benefits. You want to risk all of that because, you know, you're kind of pissed off about the fact that, you know, some, you know, some white guy. Yeah, it's racist as hell, but they would get locked in. And I thought about that. I'm like, man, that right there was effed up. I said, I ain't going to happen to me. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and I saw it. Be, I saw the first stages of that happening mm-hmm. when uh, the one of the guys that we had start, all started together, I forget, I can't remember this Jewish guy's name or the Italian guy's name because we would hang and talk about things, not hang at lunchtime, but, you know, just in the cubicles around the yeah. coffee machines and stuff like that. But there was a, a, a John Fitzpatrick. He came in when we came in. All of us had IT experience. All of us knew how to write code in college. We knew how to write code, man. Fitzpatrick had a liberal arts degree. But 
the right name. He had the right look. And I'm thinking, you know, yeah, well, you know, he's cool, but he's not going to go too far here. This is information technology. He's not going to be, able to, you know, this back then it was computer, computer systems, you know. Yeah. But they made an announcement. Art Miller, who was the director of IT at that time or the director of CS, um, said what we're going to do is I'm going to bring in uh, John Fitzpatrick. He's going to, like, take charge of some things like little projects that involve, like, setting up the uh, uh, Christmas uh, dinners and coordinating the baseball teams and things like that. Uh, So he's going to work a little closer with me, you know, and he's going to come in more on the finance side. He's going to do some IT, but he's going to be on the finance side. Basically, they were taking him under their wing to promote him. Yeah. To prep him yeah. to be the, to to move on up, yeah. right? And I never forget me and the uh, man. I can't remember the, this this uh, Mike Mike Fisher. That was his name. The guy we were we were standing outside the elevator, uh, uh, one of the elevators at Cadillac, and Bob Socia, who was one of the one of the white guys moving up. Bob Socia ended up being uh, president of the uh, Chinese uh, or the uh, division of uh, GM, uh, mm-hmm. big time uh, uh, division of GM in China, right? Yeah. But he was, he was young just like us back then, right? i never forget his embarrassed look as those elevators closed while Mike Fisher and I were looking at him and John Fitzpatrick. And John Fitzpatrick innocently asked him, what, is, what exactly is depreciation? Mm. Now, if you're in business mm-hmm. school, especially in wait, 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 and they said we're prepping him for finance. Yeah, so it's not right. like we're prepping him for for, right. for for like blueprints or something like that. But right. to be a person that's about to move into running something in finance and not know what depreciation is is like damn near. Yeah, they were basically making him. It was a unilateral move up, where man, you don't know these fundamentals that we all learned in 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 college, man. Mm-hmm. And so the elevators closed and, you know, Mike and I, at that time, we looked at each other and kind of laughed. But I think both of us were like, this is fucked up, man. You know, so they're, gonna, they're prepping this guy. Right. Yeah. I remember getting into an argument with my project leader. Mm-hmm. And this is when it was when I was ready to lead General Motors. Uh, and this is some of your some of your grandfather coming out in me, I guess, well, because uh, I said to him, we're working on a project. When we're in the, we're in the ba- men's bathroom. And uh, his name is Leroy Tuttle, Navy man. You know, he didn't have a college degree either. But again, mm-hmm. back then it was co- it was common for these guys to big, tall guy, too friendly. too. I like I like Leroy, you know, uh, but this time we were, you know, uh, we got into it. Uh, I basically I said, you know what, Leroy, I should be a project leader right now. Everything that you know, I know I can do everything that you do. Mm-hmm. And it's no reason why I shouldn't be a project leader. I shouldn't have to wait my turn. You know, I remember saying that to him. He's like, you know what? You don't understand how this place works here, do you? You know, you really don't. You know, I never forget that same guy when I was. uh, This is the classic like in the movies when you're in the toilet. You know, I was on Mm -hmm. the toilet. This is a different setting. And I heard him talking to another white guy. And he was saying, I can't remember what it was, but it was something derogatory about about black folks, you know. Mm -hmm. And I said, yeah, this is uh, I just said this just ain't for me. You know, just ain't for me. 
Right then, Gary, I began to put it together that uh, I'm probably not the kind of guy to work in a setting like this. I can't see myself in this setting. Okay, so like like many people, are you thinking that, okay, this may just be a problem here at General Motors. Maybe if I go to Ford, it's different. Like, what's your thought process? Because sometimes that's what most times people yep. think. People think if I make a switch, maybe it's just this. Or maybe if I transfer to Buick, it'll be different. You know, they, they hired a black guy. Uh, I, I just read Ebony about the black guy that's running this division so it's probably cool over there because that's usually the response I would come home and uh, and I was uh, talk to uh, let me see were we married by then I guess I can't remember if we I would talk to Janella mm-hmm. and I would tell her you know uh, I'm dissatisfied I enjoy mm-hmm. working there I like the projects mm-hmm. but I don't like the treatment I don't like mm-hmm. what I perceive coming down the pipeline I don't want to be another Derek Phil or Chuck I just can't do that right Yeah. she knew of and they were very popular then uh, headhunters black headhunters it was what's a, black, a headhunter oh uh, these are companies that recruit uh, uh, people to work at other jobs you know if you're mm-hmm. working someplace and you're uh, and they say hey if you you know you're interested in something else We'll find you another job. And they get a they get a percentage if they you. place you at another job. This black company was called, the name of it was Ludot. Ludot was a well-known black headhunter company in uh, in Detroit at that time. Mm-hmm. And she lined me up with uh, one of those brothers. I remember talking to him on the phone. And he said, well, how would you like to work at, uh, you think about working at Burroughs? At that time, Burroughs World Headquarters was located in Detroit, you know, and it was, was you know, I don't even know if people know what Burroughs is. It's Unisys now, no, even yeah. if they know what Unisys is. Yep. But at that time, a well-known company, it were, they competed with IBM, and mm-hmm. back then it was Honeywell and Data Control, companies like that, you know. Um, I said, yeah, I'll, tell you, I'll talk to them. Mm-hmm. And you're right, Gary. I was thinking at that time it's the G- GM environment. Yeah. But I learned even after going to Burroughs because I did quit. So I you quit switched GM. and yeah. went to Burroughs and Burles. said. Yeah, switched and went to Burroughs and basically came in at uh, 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 a higher level, more money, mm-hmm. right? Not what I would call management level because I didn't have people reporting to me. Mm-hmm. But it was a level where I had more independence. But to make a long story short, you know, it was a different atmosphere, started out the same way. You know, I met some interesting people there, like the most influential guy that I met and enjoyed talking with uh, was uh, Charlie Beckham's brother. Mm-hmm. I think his name was Bill, Bill Beckham. Beckham. Bill Beckham. Yeah, Bill Beckham. And I remember Bill Beckham asked me to come and speak to, at that time, uh, they would have this, like, uh, kitchen cabinet group that would meet every every month to mm-hmm. uh, advise the mayor. And the mayor, Mayor Coleman Alexander Young, would okay. actually come in on those groups every now and then. He'd say, yeah, you know, if you're lucky, you know, you'll probably have a chance to meet the mayor. Yeah. And of course, I didn't. Every time yeah. I would go to speak with this guy, it was you know? not. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he not he, he didn't miss that, those days. But <laughs> I did meet him once uh, in those turning those turning doors in front of the GM head, in front of the uh, Burroughs World headquarters. He was uh, coming in. I was going out. He said, like, "Yeah, how you doing, young man?" You know, he didn't know mm-hmm. how I was, so you know. Yeah. But anyway, I left there. When I left there, it was based on a discussion that I had with a brother named Don Williams. I met Don Williams through the Black Data Processing Association. Mm-hmm. Remember when you and your sister, we and Janella would bring you guys to the uh, Black Data Processing Associates meetings at, on yeah. the Urban League? Yep. On, uh, yeah, so, mm-hmm. uh, so it was through Don Williams that I met this guy named Jerome Shepard. Mm-hmm. Jerry Shepard, man. That was my first 
step out into toward being uh, independent, toward being self-employed. And and how did it go? I was a real punk ass initially, man, because I remember them taking me. You probably won't remember this restaurant. It was called Mr. Mike's mm-hmm. on Woodward, you know, uh, yeah. near uh, the, the Chevrolet uh, Chevrolet place. I can't remember. Yeah, James Martin Chevrolet. Yeah. 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 There was a real cool restaurant called Mr. Mike's. Mm-hmm. I met Jerry Shepard there the first time. And Shepard was one of he was he had on a really cool suit, really looked like a model. Mm-hmm. But talk just like to me a, a brother from the streets. Yeah. And Don was saying, Yeah, 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 Jerry, this is the brother I was telling you about. And then he Shepard was, Yeah, so you want to come in? Uh, that's good, man. You're making a movie, you're gonna make more money. But to cut to the chase, I said, Yeah, but you know, I don't know what kind of uh, I'm getting a lot of experience and exposure at, at Burroughs on things that I'll be able to use in the future, like skills that I'll be able to apply. Yeah, you're, you're basically saying a lot of what is told to you yep. uh, in, in the business world. It's yep. like you'll get a lot of experiences who look good on your resume. You're right. working with some of the best professionals, best yeah. equipment, um, you know, right. build on your expertise. Yeah. So you, also, you tell him that. Yeah, I tell him that. And also in the back of my mind, and this guy was smart enough to know, because he's, he's probably done it a lot. I'm also like, Reluctant to, you know, it's a black company. I don't know nothing about black companies. I'm used to working in a corporate environment like yeah. General Motors or Burroughs. What's it going to be like stepping out here in Detroit mm-hmm. working with this brother? I don't know what the deal. Will I be, get my paychecks yeah, on will, time? Will, my you know? check, will I be paid? Will yeah. I be paid? You know? <laughs> <laughs> I got a so, wife. I got kids. Yeah. So I said to myself, you know what? I said, uh, you know, he really, we went to, the three of us went to lunch a couple of times. But then I, I talked to Janella and I said, you know what? I'm going to uh, I'm, a, I'm going to say I want to be an independent contractor and make more money and i never forget being at, 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 at lunch and, and saying that to Jerry and Don who was sitting across sitting next to Jerry said uh, oh no Greg you might not want to do that right away and i never forget Jerry stopping him Saying no, man. If you want to be an independent contractor, that's okay. We can we can work we can work that out, Don. We'll work with him on that, you know. Mm-hmm. And that's what that's what happened. That's that really stepped me into that circle of like uh, no longer being employed at any corporation. I really didn't work any more companies until I became deputy auditor general for the uh, city of Detroit. And you know that job only lasted like five months. Mm-hmm. But up until that. That stepped me out into the independent contractor business. And um, and so much of that, uh, you, you have a niche with that. And, and that kind of moves us. I know we're we're skipping a lot in this story. Um, yeah. But I, I definitely want to make sure we keep this buttoned up for Detroit is different. But your niche is IT. You, right. you, you are a person. It's a lot of people that say they're computer programmers mm-hmm. and are into computer programming. But you actually can code, and oh, yeah. you've always right. been in that world. Right. What was it that connected you to this? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm going to say uh, our ancestors, the Creator. You know, mm-hmm. when I going back to college, when I was uh, first became exposed to to computers, I'm sitting in a room in the University of Cincinnati with a bunch of guys that are in, you know it was the the business uh, majors and the in, and the engineers took the same. Uh, uh, college uh, co- coding course together. It was Fortran. Now, I know you don't even know about mm-hmm. that coding, but but I never forget, I was the only brother in that class. Class of about 40 guys, right? And actually, no women. Mm-hmm. You know, Maybe there may have been, but I, I just recall all guys, all white guys. 
But I was asking some of the stupidest ass questions that you would ever think of because it was all new to me. Mm-hmm. But I was like, man, this stuff is something about this. I think I'm on light. Right. Those first few days, those first few weeks, I was asking all them dumb questions. By the end of that term, I was kicking ass and cold, man. Kicking mm-hmm. ass. Right. It almost became like I was addicted to that stuff. Mm-hmm. I would literally be going to the uh, back in Cincinnati. The two fraternities that would give the best parties were the uh, the the alphas and then the silly one, the the wild one. Uh, oh, you mean the Qs? And the Qs, right, mm-hmm. right. Best parties. Mm-hmm. So you know, if you wanted to go and drink and get high, weed and all of that, you party was well, definitely the Qs. Mm-hmm. After those parties, man, I was I would I could be high. Mm-hmm. I would back then there were little computer centers or you could go to a computer center to see if your computer printout, if what you what you coded, if it came out correctly. Right. It might be two o'clock. Oh, and they were open 24 hours. It might be two or three o'clock in the morning. I would leave lit mm-hmm. and go to the computer center. Mm-hmm. And and I remember being high going in there. And incidentally, all I would see back then, we're talking about like mid 80s or no, no, not 80s. Let me no uh, mid 70s. Mm-hmm. Indians, Asians mm-hmm. and just and three, you. two or three and me, two yeah, or three. In so the it's like this dude right. with an afro. Yeah. And yeah. Right. <laughs> I still had hair there. Right. Right. <laughs> and, yeah. Uh, and the Indian and Asians and Asian students. And I come in there, you know, they lit. I probably could say, yeah, he smells like a little bit of marijuana or whatever, you know. But mm-hmm. but I took to it where I begin to really know I was good is when there was a, uh, in a business course, there was a, uh, a course called PO. There was a coding, a big course where it was taught in something called Zimmerman Auditorium. Zimmerman Auditorium hold, held at that time 1,500 people. Mm-hmm. This was what a lot of folks would refer to as one of the flunk out classes because it was computer coding mm-hmm. and they didn't really play around. You know, this was, you know, I'd already been with the engineers. So by the time I had jumped in, oh, and I'm kind of jumping over something, but I changed majors. I changed majors into the College of Business. When mm-hmm. I, with the engineers, it was a different, I was in the College of Design, Art, and Architecture. But 1,500 folks in this auditorium. And it was, and the assignments to most folks were difficult assignments. Man, I was like, I, I, I took to it like a sponge. I love that stuff. Mm-hmm. I would, I would uh, knock out the, I had a process where I would write the code. And back then, understand, this was before you had computers like your laptop and all of that. This was when you had computer cards. Mm-hmm. You know, they call them the computer decks. And so, you know, you, you on a key punch machine, key punch cards, you yeah. punch up the cards, you put them in the computer or, or you give them to an operator. They would put them into a card reader and you'd have to wait to get a, a green printout to see if your results was right or wrong. If they were wrong, you see all these syntax errors. You see a syntax error, you say, damn, you know, I got to change one of the mm-hmm. whatever the com- key punch cards and put them back in again. What began to happen with me? I'd go. Oh, incidentally, they put your assignment up. They give you back your cards and they give you back your green bar printout wrapped around the cards with the rubber band mm-hmm. and you and they would and you'd get a ticket uh, where you would know okay go to this cubicle you know it'd be like a bunch of like cubicles like going like a little mailbox go to this open mailbox to pull out your uh, your your uh, cards and your printout I would go back I'd say you know and my cards and printout were missing mm-hmm so I go to the operator 
And he or she would say, well, let's just check. And they go in the back and they come back. No, no, they put them up there. Somebody just must have accidentally taken your printout. Yeah. And so I did it again. You know, this happened a couple, you know, about a week or so later. Same thing. I'm like, what? I don't know what's going on. So, you know, uh, well, somebody, you know, so I started making copies of my deck. It, it, it happened so often. I'm going to say six or seven times, son, that after a while, I simply just said, I'm going to make a copy of my key punch cards because this is happening so often. These operators are losing people's Stuff. card decks. Mm-hmm. But, it, but it wasn't people. It was just me. An announcement was made at the Zimmerman Auditorium class. This was weeks into the uh, the curriculum that they were investigating mass cheating in Zimmerman Auditorium. Mm-hmm. Mass cheating in this particular class. The uh, professor was pissed too. He was upset. And he says, "We'll be getting to the bottom of all of this very soon." Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I'm thinking, "Yeah, I don't know what's going on. You know, I guess folks are having some trouble." That same time when he announced that, one of the TAs came over to me, teacher's assistants, professor's assistants, mm-hmm. and said, yeah, you know, we, he wants to meet with you, you know, because he said, we'll be talking to all the people that, that are involved in the cheating scandal, right? And so later on that day, it was like, you know, in the afternoon, two o'clock, you got to meet, you know, this is important, you know. And I still didn't know what was going on. I'm thinking, mm-hmm. damn, I know what it is guy's been looking at my printouts and he sees I know how to code. That I can code my I'm going to be one of I'm gonna be a TA. They're mm-hmm. gonna say, look, we want you to help others. You can be a TA like these upperclassmen. Because I wasn't even, you know, I'm like what, 10, uh, I'm a sophomore. Mm-hmm. These guys were juniors and seniors. So I go and meet this professor. I go into the room with the professor. The TA that asked me to come in there, he's standing on one side of the professor and this other TA is there. The professor's there and he says to uh, to me, yeah, have a seat, young man. This is Greg Frazier. He says, uh, we know you're one of the people that, that that's involved with this cheating scandal. I'm like, no, I've heard of, you know, I, I, I was there when you talked about it. I'm not cheating. And so he slid over this printout and one of the TAs said, you know, you know about this code here? Son, they were showing me my code. Mm. My code had been duplicated. It was a fraternity doing that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they had spread and shared. They were stealing my code and sharing it with, I guess, their, the rest of their fraternity brothers. And then obviously it would share, be shared by other people. Yeah. These guys started drilling me on my code, mm-hmm. asking me questions. I was answering the questions because I knew the hell out of it. Mm-hmm. I was telling them, son, I was telling them about things I had read ahead of where they were. Mm-hmm. Not because I wanted to show off. It's because I was fascinated by that. Just lack of a term, uh, if there are any coders listening, when I talk about functions and subroutines, we weren't even up to functions and subroutines, but I was. And so I was even saying to these TAs and to the professor, yeah, this is something here. The way this is done right here, you can take this and make a function out of it. Mm-hmm. You could do this and do this in a subroutine. It'll save some coding time. You know, I backed them off. You know what he did? He said, I'm going to make you a TA. Bullshit. He didn't do that. He didn't even say, look, we're sorry we brought you in here. He didn't even say, man, we're impressed with what you, what you, what you know. You know, sorry you took, we took up your time. He just said, we'll be in touch. Mm-hmm. I walked out of there. I'm thinking, man, that's kind of a, a letdown. 
They know I can. They know I did this. They know I know how to code. He didn't even show any appreciation for my knowledge. This is when, in my opinion, another ancestor stepped into my world. Because as I was walking down those steps away from that building, at first I felt bad. Mm-hmm. But that was when it dawned on me, you just been complimented. Mm-hmm. Because you, to them, are a threat. Mm-hmm. That's why that professor didn't acknowledge anything that you said. That's why when you answered those guys as they were drilling you back and forth and you just winged it and just did it and just and just answered their questions effortless, effortlessly. Mm-hmm. They didn't acknowledge anything. Now, probably them white boys were taking cues from the professor not to say anything. Yeah. But you already know you kicked ass. Mm-hmm. That's the value. You don't need any outside, any external confirmation of what you know. And if anything, it was the negative confirmation that tells you you're a bad dude because mm-hmm. you are a threat to them. That threat, not only to them, those three and that professor, but as a black man in America, you are a threat to this system. Now, understand, it just, I just didn't come to that conclusion just At on my own. Time, I've been like talking to 20, other brothers, yeah, particularly yeah, yeah. older brothers, you know, mm-hmm. that were. And back then, that was just when the whole uh, African studies was coming into play. So there was mm-hmm. some brothers like, uh, and you've heard me talk about Chuck, one of my best friends. Yeah. And there was some other guys that were heavy into that. So I was beginning to get some of that. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking to myself, and especially when I talk to them guys. And it's, you know, yeah, nigga, what you expect? You thought they were going to give you an award or something, you know? Mm-hmm. And then begin to, yeah. This is the kind of, this is like a, a confirmation of where I want yeah. to be, a confirmation, affirmation, whatever. So, yeah, that's, that started me down this path of the way I think today. So, so in this world of coding, because it's not just, uh, it's unique to be a black man in that space, just a black person. But as I found just in some of the things I do with tech, it's a lot of... It's a lot of lipstick on a pig out here. It's a lot of people that claim tech, yeah. that claim information technology when they're at best, you know, they're just a middleman to somebody else. It's That happens very often. That's true. You know, um, how did how have you navigated in this space and, and how do you use that to your competitive advantage in your business? What and you have we've talked about this uh, before and. Uh, sort of, it sort of evolved, or I became, uh, uh, even before I was aware of it, that uh, that a, a niche for me mm-hmm. is a niche where I can uh, provide a solution that's a mission critical solution. Explain what mission critical okay. is. Okay. Here's here's a. Mission critical is something that is vital to the operation or the business or that enterprise in its in its functionality to the point where it might even where where without that solution, the business it may not even be a going concern. The risk of it being a going concern could could be uh, affected or you know at a minimum a major loss in dollars, major loss in operations. So give an personnel. example. Give an example. Yeah, I'll give you one real good example, an early one, before I, without even getting into current clients. One of the first contracts we had, uh, you remember the company that we started called MSC, mm-hmm. was with the, uh, at then it was called the Michigan Employment Securities Commission. The Michigan Employment Securities Commission 
which had its uh, uh, building over there on Grand River in Woodward. You know what that is? Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, yeah, you've had meetings over there with folks like Tony, mm-hmm. Tony Adams and them. This yeah. Is, yeah. So, uh, but back in the back in the uh, early '80s, uh, when I started. Initially, I started with Jerry Shepard, but eventually I went out on my own. We started this company called Management Systems Consultants. And uh, the people that uh, I worked with at that time, the first people that I met, and it was through a brother named Bill Johnson, who at that time wanted to be a partner at KPMG. He was on that track to be a partner, so he thought. And, uh, And one of the major contracts that they had, they being KPMG, the accounting firm, was to provide a system that would enable MESC, the Michigan Employment Securities Commission, the people that process unemployment checks, that issue unemployment checks and then process unemployment insurance payments from companies to make make their financial statements auditable. Put them in a position where you can audit their financial statements. Mm -hmm. Big company, you know, big government entity like that had not, uh, Arthur Anderson had had, uh, developed a system in place for them, the system it was it had a lot of issues with it. But one of the biggest issues was that the information was so reliable or unreliable that you couldn't they couldn't uh, come up with with uh, financial statements and get a clean Ain't opinion. Yeah, they couldn't get a clean opinion. Mm-hmm. They would get qualified opinions, or I think it was one year they got no opinion. You know? All right, so so and then you got to explain this too, because I mean you're getting into the weeds with accounting. So like a okay. clean opinion on an audit, please explain that. Yeah, a, a, a clean opinion in, in effect it's like the equivalent of saying uh, the uh, financial statements fairly present the uh, financial position and the financial performance of whatever entity it is that you're auditing mm-hmm. where there are no no exceptions were found that's the that's the that's what every company wants every mm-hmm. company wants this clean opinion from an independent auditor like a KPMG or an Arthur Anderson or a Deloitte or a PricewaterhouseCoopers that's really one of the that's the major money maker for these accounting firms to be able to go in and state some kind of opinion all right uh, and it's a sad day when companies that rely on getting a clean opinion get something called uh, uh, an exception, mm-hmm. where there's some exceptions. Those exceptions may be due to, you know, basically usually bad internal controls or just the information is just unreliable. It doesn't add up. The balance sheet information doesn't make sense. The, you know, you said you made X dollars, but we have evidence that you didn't make X dollars, right? So a clean opinion is where no exceptions are found. An exception would be the things that I'm talking about that would indicate that there's some weaknesses that merit mm-hmm. disparities or anomalies in your financial statements. And then uh, uh, a, uh, a adverse opinion, which is really like, hey, you know, we can't even audit this. You know, this is mm-hmm. bad. We don't, we're not even going to touch it. MESC couldn't get clean opinions until we put the system in place. Mm-hmm. We being the folks that developed the system. Oh, the no, folks no, that developed no. the system. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Oh, I'll, so I can move it back. No, no, that's cool. The folks that developed uh, uh, the, the so so KPMG brought in. I was one of the developers, and with some other folks to cut to the chase. Like you just said, it's people that 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 hold themselves out to be coders. Can't code worth a damn. They may mm-hmm. know how to code, you know, the, the fundamental a stuff. Bit. Yeah. But coding is more than just being the nerd that codes. 
Coding is you got to have a vision to know what the solution is going to be. Mm-hmm. Coding is where you got to be able to look at look at a problem, listen to people articulate what the problem is, look at the results, and be able to envision how to come up with a solution. And then you get and then if you know how to write the code to do it, yeah, you know you're that's the trifecta. You the you are the Michael Jordan. And that's what some, uh, I remember some, uh, a Filipino uh, company that uh, I had did business with for years uh, in Chicago, uh, Minda. She said, you know, to her folks, yeah, he's the Michael Jordan of coding. But mm-hmm. um, so we started, so we came up with a system. The, the first, where they begin, where the KPMG people began to pay attention to me was the, this was a very political environment, MESC. Well, of course, being in Detroit and dealing yeah. with unemployment. And, and so... The uh, IT people at MESC didn't want KPMG to have anything to do with their systems. They would, they didn't want to give provide uh, computers or terminal. Back there would be terminals. They didn't want to have t- terminal access to their mainframe computers where we could begin to code and write tests and uh, do tests and things like write the code and, and test our systems and all that. And they were, uh, and they were a lot of, uh, under a lot of pressure. I remember the partner in charge, who was actually a brother at that time. The brother's name was Eddie Munson. Uh, the partner in charge at KPMG came to see how we were doing because he had got word that, hey, we've got some challenges here. Personal computers were just coming into their own back then. Mm-hmm. Turns out there was a uh, software called Realia that basically you could install this software on a, you could install what, what we would call mainframe computer software, which is written in COBOL. You could install that on these microcomputers and you could unit test, and I know I'm kind of getting into the weeds with this, but basically you could do all the coding on these. On a PC. On a PC, and mm-hmm. then we upload it to the mainframe. Mm-hmm. I found out all the de- I did all the research and found that out and then started doing it. And then, you know, I mean, they, they paid for it. KPMG ate it up. Right. Mm-hmm. We came out uh, uh, anyway, cut to the chase. That same uh, that that following year, they got their first uh, uh, audited financial statements. Uh, now, and I was wrong. They couldn't even get audited financial statements prior to that. They got audited financial statements, but not a clean opinion. They got yeah. exceptions, right? But that was a start. Later on, of course, they improved. Where uh, that's an example of not something that would shut down MESC, but it would have been a major scandal had we not had that not been pulled mm-hmm. off, right? Had that not had we failed at that? Yeah. And when I say we, I'm talking about me. Mm-hmm. I'm the one that did the code. I'm, let me put it this way. There's coding that you can do. That's basic rudimentary stuff. You know, you're not going to do all. I was the I was the coder. I was the lead guy. I was the one that visualized it, yeah. explained it to other folks. So here I am, this brother that was from South Avondale, poor part of Avondale. Oh, I, I, I want to stay close to the mic, I guess. But but uh, talking to these folks from uh, from, you know, Notre Dame and places like that because they couldn't code. And they couldn't visualize. They couldn't. They couldn't see. Mm-hmm. Right. All of that is is my philosophy about how our ancestors also flow through us. All we're doing and what I'm doing. I'm not a genius or anything. Mm-hmm. I'm simply remembering our past. Now I know I'm getting kind of philosophical mm-hmm. here, but there's nothing new under the sun here. Everything that we do, like with coding and all of that. We've done before in prior civilizations, man. And I know that's hard for a lot of people to see, but the black man and woman, we've been on this planet for like millennia. So all of this is simply remembering what we already knew. 
So at, at that, that brings us to what we're talking about today, uh, the NFTs. Um, yeah. And uh, shout out to my friend Mike, uh, Mike Willingham, that was one of the first people kind of talking about it in the space. And I was thinking to myself, you know, Detroit is different was kind of one of the first on the scene with podcasting. Now we're venturing into this uh, community group. We're starting a nonprofit. And and within it, when I talk, spoke to Mike, I was like, um, what, what, what's the deal with these NFTs? And this is like maybe a discussion, you know, months ago. And then he was like, well, I know it's on the Ethereum platform. And and then we we're talking a little bit more and it's kind of like smart contracts. And I'm like, I know my dad does a lot on smart contracts because I videotaped him giving presentations to the MICPA right. on what smart smart contracts are and back to auditing, continuous audits right. and things like that. Um, so if NFTs deal with and are built upon Ethereum, I'm sure my dad can help with the NFT. And then my own research into it, it's like a non-fungible token. Mm -hmm. So that non-fungible token can't be broken down and it's only one. I said, I want to make this different. I want to make one NFT be shared amongst many people, which is kind of against the grain, but I'm always thinking like, what could be different? How do we go against the grain? Mm -hmm. And that's where I get on the phone with you I present the idea to you. You're like, I don't know. This NFT thing could just be some, you know, it could be the hype beast. Mm -hmm. It could be something serious. What's your idea? And I'm like, I want to sell a Detroit is different NFT and kind of capitalize from the social, you know, kind of. It would use the social capital that Detroit is different has built and put it in the space of NFTs. Mm -hmm. That is my idea. That's the concept. And then. You were like, okay, let me look a little more into this. You looked a little bit more into this. Now you got a presentation today. Okay, all right, and 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 uh, uh, and, and and that's a great synopsis, son. And let's understand where we're at. NFTs, not all this is so new. Yeah, we're all still learning mm -hmm. about NFTs. Uh, I'm still learning as we as we go, but it is fascinating uh, to me. Um, and as you pointed out, what an NFT is a non fungible token, mm -hmm. and Man, where do we start? I mean, I don't know. <laughs> Basically, that non-fungible token is subject to the same infrastructure as Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. And that is what makes it a non, you know, non-fungible means that you can't change it. it you, you can't, uh, a better way to say that is it's not, you can't interchange it, you can't manipulate it. It's like mm -hmm. once that token is created, it's out there. You can't delete it, you can't modify it, you can't, you know, it's there. The reason it's out there is because it's replicated thousands and thousands of times. Amongst the blockchain, amongst the blockchain, and let let right. me put let me add this too for people. So, because I know how my dad is, and you know, you can see he loves this, and you see he's good at coding. You know, I'm, I want to give it to people how I think it's going to impact them a little bit more and hit them in the gut. Um, so, if if a person's asking what's the value of NFT, first off. You know, if you go out and buy an NFT, don't think that you're about to become a billionaire. Right. There's no such thing as getting rich quick, even with the whole concept of Bitcoin. And I was one of the first people to introduce to my dad, hey, have you thought about this Bitcoin? And right. years ago, I don't even know if you remember this now, but uh, we were listening together, going to the DAC where you have a membership, mm -hmm. listening to a Joe Rogan podcast on NFTs. And this may have been like seven years ago. Mm -hmm. And you were like, eh, I don't know anything about that. Then you were like, yeah, I'm looking a little bit more into this NFT thing. It was NFTs in or was it you know, Oh, it was the Bitcoin. Bitcoin, Bitcoin. Yeah, Bitcoin. I'm looking right, a little right. bit more into this Bitcoin. And it's like, I'm going to do a, 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 a MICPA presentation on Bitcoin right. and what this means. So, um, so a lot of this kind of deals with 
there are challenges in the central banking system. If if, uh, traditionally, as we know, where we have fiat currency is connected to the central banking system, meaning that the Federal Reserve, uh, right now we know interest rates have been flat for forever and we see inflation on houses and many other things and things talked about, it's set through the Fed. I feel like I'm in an econ class right now talking to people. But um, this Fed... The, the Federal Reserve that sets interest rates and decides the circulation of American currency, which impacts the world currency because most of the world trades, quote unquote, in their stock markets upon American currency. Uh, and this can fluctuate depending upon where interest rates lie, you know, or the gross domestic product. I, I, I know this is econ class, but we're two wash guys, business people. <laughs> this matters to you because a centralized banking, basically the government which it really ain't even government, but an outside entity can control how cash influxes and flows and how much is in circulation mm-hmm. with upon the blockchain and through Bitcoin and many other cryptocurrencies, instead of a centralized bank, it is a collection of computer servers or compu- people that open up their computer servers to agree upon how transactions are flowing. So instead of, uh, you, you know, and I'm sure I don't know if any of you all have ever sold a house or something like that. And you get a check for like, let's say like $100,000. You get a check for something like that. You put it in a bank. It may take two weeks for that to clear. Mm-hmm. If you sold a house through the blockchain with Bitcoin or cryptocurrency, you got your money right then and there because nobody's checking the transaction. Nobody's looking. Nobody's reviewing. The people that are reviewing is this collection of servers that have bought into what this is. Now, the blockchain for what people, you know, this is a very short example. It's just like a ledger or how you may keep for, for anybody old enough. If you have a checkbook, you know, you, you got to know what's in your what's in your bank, what's they outside your bank. That's what the blockchain technically is. But the check and balance on the blockchain is that you have so many people verifying what that transaction is of what went in and also what went out. So it would be almost as if the whole neighborhood had a had a had a um, had a had a penny jar. You know, we knew it always had 100 pennies. Kari took out two pennies today in, in my whole neighborhood. All 100 people on my block saw me take the two pennies. So now they know that I have these two pennies ready. And they know that I'm going to take these two pennies and go put it in Greg Frazier's penny jar. So now those same 100 people would verify that those two pennies went from me to Greg Frazier. And then this is the also the unique thing about the blockchain. It follows all these transactions. It opens up and gives freedom for us to spend and engage in currency. And we know just right now through so many of these banking systems, what can happen, what can freeze your account, what could uh, control what you could do. I mean, God forbid, you know, knock on wood, uh, you end up in any legal troubles and you got money in the bank. You ain't got money in the bank. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. You end up in some legal troubles and you end up in Bitcoin with Bitcoin. The government's still trying to figure out how they can control things like that. What would happen? You know, if you make that purchase for that house or that transaction, because let's say you you sell your house and now you're in a new city and you need access to some of that capital immediately for whatever move you're going to make. You may still be waiting that 14 days. You made that crypto sale. You wouldn't have to do that. So it becomes through the collection of all these other computers and many of the other users, it verifies. It's a collective yes and a collective understanding of what is as opposed to 
uh, like we say, it's the Fed is not even a government agency. This is an independent entity that the government trusts to control the funding and the bank, uh, the 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 cash circulation and the interest rates of the United States of America. That is what the Fed is. Cryptocurrency can collapse not just that here in America, but throughout all markets across the world. And then in certain places across the world, as we know, in Africa, you know, it's already, you know, more more fluid. Because, as we know, world banking, the International Monetary Fund, but uh, i.e. white supremacy has already looked to corrupt it, which has made other nations like Ghana, Nigeria, uh, Liberia, Libya, way more open to using this. And not just in those African countries, in all of the countries, every country that has been oppressed through international banking. And you can tie any international banking back to colonialism. Mm -hmm. It's hopping right on top of a lot of this. Now, the Ethereum platform is a little bit different than just the Bitcoin blockchain because the Bitcoin is just specific to what the Bitcoin blockchain is specific to what can be sold and transacted through Bitcoin. Ethereum opens up for smart contracts or whatever. It's basically just tracking whatever that ledger transaction is. And that's what can be valuable about what an NFT is. So when I say that you're not going to become a millionaire off NFTs, you need to be choosy about how you select your NFTs. It's like collecting art. You know, you hear that it's, it's, it's value in a, here's a classic one, and I'm sure the art community probably wants to smack me in the face, but I look at a lot of Basquiat paintings and I think it looks like Scribble Scrabble personally to me. So if I were to buy a Basquiat painting under the premise of, you know, it's worth millions of dollars and Jay-Z appraised this, or, or Jay-Z's appraiser appraised it, and I buy it, and then I find out that it's only worth, I can only sell it for five, I'll be mad as hell. So if I buy a painting and I buy some art, yeah, I want it to be worth a lot in the appraisal market, but I also want it to be something good that I can look at. And that's how you need to be thinking about buying NFTs too. So with that kind of short soliloquy and monologue, mm -hmm. I pass it back Very to good. you. Right, right. Yeah, that is, uh, yeah, that is, you know, there's so many things you just said that I want to just kind of echo. Um, okay. First of all, to me, in my opinion, uh, the feds, they're not independent. They're basically controlled by by the U.S. government. They're basically controlled by, let me, I'll, I'll extend it to even say, they basically are controlled by the Eurocentric uh, uh, establishment. Well, right. when I say that the Fed is not, uh, it's not a, when I say it's not a part of the government, I'm going through the lens of it's not democratic. Right. Meaning that we're not appointing who who is, who, who's in those positions. Not directly. But we're not, but we yes, appoint, we, we, we appoint those that select. That, that can, uh, that can uh, the president can I think can't they remove the yeah yeah the the chairman of the Fed but right. but also who are those boardmen of the Fed mm -hmm. kind of have a free reign and sit in those posts for you but, know ten but, ten but, years and when I say free reign meaning that it's not as it's not in the same vein of like right now on the crux of what I feel like is happening in an international or in a, a, a national crisis of what's happening with the way cash flow is in America right now. Yeah. Someone will be held way more accountable, as we saw in 2008, if these were people we had to vote for. But they're once removed. So we, we blame George W. Bush or Barack Obama for what Ben Bernanke or like, you know, or here's the classic one, you know, uh, too big to fail. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, they got us in the problem. We got you in this problem, so we're the best people to get out, get you out of this right. problem. Yeah. That's not the type of shit that a politician can say. <laughs> That's not even something that, you know what I'm saying, you can stand on. But like a Ben Bernanke or a, a Alan Greenspan can say something like that mm-hmm. because they know in reality, at best, I'm dealing with, you know, I would say that um, I would say uh, Jamie Dimon has more control and, and influence of the Fed than Joe Biden does. Right. And right. that's why I say it's not us because the corporations that run these banks and, and the purse strings of how the money is released to these banks. So, you, you know, and, and man, I didn't think I'd go on this economic soliloquy, but Sorry. basically a bank makes money uh, in the same concept of like, I guess, loan sharking. A bank makes money off of loaning money and then they gather that money through the interest rates. Yeah. That's the on paper version of what a bank and, can so do. Talking about loan shot, the term would be the VIG. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's so, exactly right. so, so, uh, so to have a bank in America, you technically, hence the FDIC and what happened with the original crash, if we know the stock market crash, uh, mm-hmm. well, my other grandmother said, shit, I don't remember the Great Depression because we was already poor. Right. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but at that point in time, it's like the FDIC see will insure up to $200,000 in, into this transaction. But to insure that money in that $200,000, you have to have a relationship and be established as, as, some, as a bank within this system to lend money and all of this. Cryptocurrency supersedes all of that. Right, right. You know, it's no, you know, Jamie Dimon does not have any more access to, to blockchain than you do. If you decide to buy right now. So even if Chase goes in and says, we want to buy $400 million worth of of cryptocurrency, and you decide to buy $1 worth of cryptocurrency, it's the same influence. Whereas we already know that if, if Chase Bank wants to do something, I'm sure that the Fed will allow for Chase or Bank of America or, um, you know, any of these uh, banks around here that... have ties to colonialism you know let's be clear about that you know ties to colonialism Mm -hmm. they have more access to this and that's why I say the Fed is operating outside of the government accountability system of the lens of democracy but Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. here we Mm -hmm. go good point yeah okay yeah I'm with you I'm with you so yeah um, if you think about fiat currency right now yeah Fiat currency has no intrinsic value. Mm-hmm. The only value that fiat currency currency has is whatever value the perceptions of folk think mm-hmm. it has. And most perceptions of people that trust fiat currency, and when we take fiat, we're talking about the dollar bill. Yes. Peso and all that, but we'll say the dollar bill. That perception is basically propped up by government willing to step in and prop up that currency when it's hurting. Mm. And one of the reasons it hurts is because you basically have uh, a centralized monetary system with these third parties, these middlemen that that try and control the flow and the value of that dollar. And, yeah. and that and 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 what we're beginning to see is they're effing lousy at it. 
And at one point in time, as many people say, because I'm sure it's people saying like, that's why you just be. So at one point in time, you know, it was the gold standard. A dollar you could yep. trade in for a certain amount of gold. But now I would go as far as to say that the the value of a dollar is kind of based upon the debt that you can you can incur. Hence, the value of cash itself, when we talk about capitalism, is the liquidity of it, meaning that yep. I can have, you know, this this dollar bill and that dollar bill can now be transferred into X amount of value. And this is what shows the instability right now of a dollar because prices, hence the inflation of it. Prices are so all over the place, you know, if a person says that T-shirt costs $600, somebody may say, oh, man, that's it's beyond too much expensive. Mm-hmm. And another person may say, eh, all right, I guess that's a $600 shirt. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, if you had the gold standard and you still, you could still quantify things, but even gold's value at one point in time was the liquidity of it, mm-hmm. you know, because if gold no longer has li- liquid value, it's, it's the same thing. You know, if, if you know, the uh, the old adage or the, the scenario I always give is if um, if all power goes out uh and, and, you know, nothing is happening and a person's walking down the street with uh, seven gallons of water and I have $3,000 worth of money in <laughs> a cash in my hand. How valuable is are those seven gallons of water? Right. To me, it's $3,000 worth value Easy. because at this point in time with I don't know what's happening in the world, that water has now re-quantified the value. But if a person still holds the value of the cash, now you're walking up to the guy with the seven gallons of water like I'll give you $20 for it, mm-hmm. $40 for it, and, right. and you're negotiating. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it's still the perceived agreed upon value. That's right. Yeah. that And that you nailed it right there. Perceived agreed upon value. And I like your your uh, your point that that what makes the dollar still a dominant uh, currency, although it's waning. Yeah. Is its liquidity. And, and right. it also in international markets. So, yeah. you know, and uh, rest in peace to Muammar Gaddafi. And I believe that this is what led to his assassination is the fact that he was looking to not just uh, and then even the quality of life of Libyans. Um, most people don't know this. Uh, if you were a Libyan, uh, you were given the right to housing, uh, education. Uh, healthcare, many things. Libya had a very stable society through uh, what uh, what was happening with uh, with a lot of the oil trade, and we know the greed connected to that. But uh, he was going beyond what Libya was, and he was looking to create the Afro, which would have been an African dollar to to trade amongst. I want to say a lot of uh, Northern Africa and some of Central Africa, maybe some West Africa. That would have transitioned because if you go into most of these other countries. The standard of how they use currency and liquidity is based on the American dollar. And as more countries wane and move away from that, mm-hmm. that also lowers the American dollar because now I can no longer go to Panama or or or, or, or Nigeria right. or, or or Britain or Germany yeah, right. or whatever and, and have a hundred dollars and say, give me some of this. Mm-hmm. It'd be like a person from Senegal coming here with a, uh, I don't know, a Senegalese million dollars. And, and it's like, hey, let me get that shirt. You'd be like, uh, can't do nothing for you, man. Mm-hmm. And and unlike unlike Gaddafi mm-hmm. and what and what. And what Western powers did to Gaddafi, they can't bomb the blockchain. No. And if they could, if there was a way for them to, they would. Mm-hmm. So since they can't physically bomb the blockchain, 
what the Jamie Diamonds and the Buffets of the world are doing is they try to dog it every chance they can. Yep. You will never hear Jamie Diamond or William Buffett or any of those folks say anything good about about the blockchain or Bitcoin or smart contracts because it's scaring them to death. And it should mm-hmm. because that's one of the components. And it's so interesting that that how this evolution has led to all of these things now that, that we see as progress are actually things on the long run that are going to hurt uh, Western powers because decentralized monetary systems means that that guy is, you know, it, when when things are in place, the guy that's over there that's a Somalian pirate, mm-hmm. if he has access and knows how to use uh, uh, the the blockchain, you know, he can trade currency with the the person that's in Argentina that's yeah. doing things, skipping all around yep. the centralized monetary system. Yep, that scares the hell out of people. You talked about it from a, a, a macro level and how it affects countries. Uh, how a centralized system impedes uh, and restricts uh, the, that 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 flow. It also impedes and restricts individuals. Many, much, and that's much. what's powerful about what we're going to talk about here, because because that same bank, as you and you probably pointed this out, can decide that no, this particular debit card transaction uh, is not going to go through. Yeah, we we're flag, we flag. we flag this. Right. And we may, and we, you've probably dealt with that. Uh, mm-hmm. Like uh, we've all probably dealt with that. If you're, you know, we black in Detroit. I mean, our ATM machine, as I told yep. one of those people at Chase, my ATM machine goes off at six o'clock. So God forbid, if I want to get cash after yeah. six o'clock, yeah. So it's it's are there certain barriers like that? You know, it's been many times you put a check in for, I don't know, it, it was a recent transaction of just seven hundred dollars, and I'm like, that's not even that much. But mm-hmm. they held that transaction for ten business days. Yeah, and I know that like things that. like that are systemic racism. Yeah, yeah, and because of the central control, mm-hmm. that doesn't happen here. And not only no. does it happen here, what we're about to talk about, what's fascinating about NFTs, mm-hmm. is it's a way to actually do what what the dollar has done by taking something that that that's an intangible that in and of itself has no value mm-hmm. but you actually build the value of that intangible based yeah. on the perceptions of the people that are participating in the transactions and support of that intangible that intangible now being an NFT yep. the NFT could be a picture of a dog bone mm-hmm. and you decide to to upload that picture of a dog bone to a decentralized uh, uh, storage system that is that is that is connected to or interconnected to a blockchain. That would be the example of what they call the open sea marketplace and other marketplaces like that. Mm-hmm. That's where uh, uh, they've got marketplaces like this. The classic uh, LeBron James and other the NBA is tapped yeah, into NFTs big, big time. Well, those those NFTs by way of a token are connected to the blockchain where uh, the ownership of, and all it is, is again, perceptions of people saying, oh, the person that owns this particular dunk by LeBron James is this person here based on the fact that this dunk is associated with this token connected to the public key of this guy named Joe Blow. Yep. Right? And so Joe Blow owns this dunk. Now, that doesn't... Now, can somebody else say, well, man, I can see the same thing on YouTube. Yep. It's still about perceptions. That's the, the equivalent yeah. of when you brought up the idea with the horrible art. Yeah. It's like, you this still, art over yeah. here, this art is just a white canvas with a black dot on it. Yep. You say, well, wait a minute. That looks like 
that spot that's on my and my bathroom wall. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, but that ain't that or, ain't not recognized. Or, or like here's this. the classic one: you and I have both seen the Mona Lisa, and we have never been to the Louvre. Yeah, and we're we're smart enough to recognize that if we own the Mona Lisa, it would be worth what art collectors say is millions of dollars or God knows what. That's but right. we can still see the picture of it. Yeah, yeah. But the Lou has the possession of the actual quote-unquote art. That's right, that's right. So what we're talking about here is basically using the construct of NFTs mm-hmm. to literally create value in our community. That's really what, what, I, what, 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 what uh, excites me about the potential here. Mm-hmm. Is to literally be able to say, and I like your, I love the concept that you, and I'm glad we stuck with it. The concept that you said, hey, no, let's just have one NFT, mm-hmm. but have multiple ownerships of that, mm-hmm. because the multiple ownerships ensures that you have community buy-in, and that community buy-in is our opportunity to educate. Young people, old people, we're going to do the same thing with NFTs and blockchain, training people on how to how to set up their own public key and private key. Same similar process that we went through with, I don't know, you recall Detroit drums. Yeah. When drums came out, when that whole that whole uh, social this was before Facebook. Yeah. That whole social networking effort with it was with Theo Broughton and them where we had training sessions up there on Livinois and uh, that uh yeah, Livinois and like Linden. It yeah, was like where the, the, where the Happy yeah. Pizza places. I think it's still yeah. Happy Pizza's there. Yeah. yeah it but is. before it was Happy Pizza, that was a little area where people if they wanted to work on computers that mm-hmm. they didn't have in the home, they could go there. Yeah. We had training sessions on how to use drums. And so a whole a whole population of Detroiters begin to learn how to use a computer so, so they could access drums. So, so, they could, yeah. so drums, so for people that... Uh, oh, yeah. Let's, let's say right. that. Drums was a message board that was started and uh, founded through my dad. Now, this right. was, uh, I would say, maybe twenty about 20 years ago. And this drums grew to a point where I, I definitely think it uh, led to the Fire Jerry Oliver movement. Yep. Uh, it definitely led to the probably, um, you know, Freeman Hendricks not being elected mayor <laughs> Movement. I think it discouraged Archer from running for mayor. He only ran for mayor one term, primarily because of folks, because of the 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 information going through drums yeah. wasn't was was not going through mainstream media. And, and people began to yeah. just focus on drums after a while. It was it called was Detroit Drums. Detroit Rums was uh, it was a message board. So if yeah. you're familiar with the message board, you make a post and people can comment on that post. But, you know, it had but some... But you'd uh, add photos. Yep. You know, you could do all this stuff. Yeah, man. Yeah, and it had some, uh, what do you call that? Like some admin, you know, because, you know, anything on the internet. Oh, yeah. But this was like pre-spamming to That's today. That's right. This, well, this is pre-Facebook. <coughs> yeah, so, yeah. Yeah. Uh, now, I know we've been talking about you. You want to stop? No, nah, continue, continue. Um, so, by training our folks, by teaching them how mm-hmm. to get their get their own public key and private key, and then teaching them how to purchase uh, some ether, right? And you can get ether. I mean, minimum Ethereum. What, five bucks. Ethereum. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, Ethereum is the actual platform. Yep. Ether, ether is, is the, the equivalent of the Bitcoin. They call okay. it ether, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, then it's something called gas, and you know, it's mm-hmm. all based on, you know. Uh, but by doing that, it enables them to then say, what if we have a smart contract that that a token uh, is connected to, and that c- token is connected to, and I use the term totem because I thought about this. If we come up with a colorful 
not if we, when you come up with whatever that totem, whatever that visual is going to be, and that's all it really is. Mm -hmm. It's the shiny object that people look to and connect to, much like our ancestors would connect to a totem if we were in a village in Africa. Mm -hmm. That totem becomes a centerpiece of the connectivity of the village. Mm -hmm. That's why when, when people would come in and take over, of when when uh, uh, other villages, other warriors would come in and take over an African uh, uh, a village, or if Europeans came in, they say one of the ways we can get control of the hearts and minds of these folks is if we can get this totem. If we get that totem, then we're the king, right? Mm -hmm. We're talking about establishing a totem. You know, you can't just go in and grab that totem because, of course, the totem is roughly all that's because of the blockchain, right? If we have a way where people can buy we'll call it one share or two shares, let's say three to two or five dollars a pop, let's say. And 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 what they're really buying into is the ability to determine the the disposition or destination of that totem, of mm. that visual, of that uh whatever that's going to be. That and I always think of something, you know, visual, something beautiful they can look at. They can go out and see that visual on the open sea platform and see the token associated with it and know that through the smart contract that token associated with all these shares that all these folks have and in order to participate in that I was saying you could have it and these are just my speculation we could talk and you could talk to mm -hmm. other folks see how they want to do it but for a person to be listed as a member a family member or a shareholder of that uh, token they'd have to be voted in mm -hmm. and maybe there's criteria that folks will come up with you know you got to be a Detroiter you got to be someone that's local, you know, but basically, you know, you got to be voted in by a consensus of the people that are already mm -hmm. in that as shareholders connected to that one uh, public key associated with that token. Now, let me let me expand on how this values for not just Detroit is different, but this is going to be a gateway as we work this out. And I'm sure many of my other uh, cohorts and community organizing will want this because it now requantifies our social capital. So now when, um, you know, when, uh, <laughs> when, when Rocket Mortgage wants to expand, what happens with the queue line? And they want to gather some social capital. It'd be like, wow, it'd be great to get into this, uh, this, this, this Linwood and Davidson uh, token over NFT over here. How do we get that? And it's like, well, you're gonna have to get voted in through that collection of those community members. You know, yeah, and, now and, and, and now it's going to now we it's up to the value that we quantify. So right. it could be dollars. It could be. All right. You're going to put a rec center over here in the neighborhood. It could be whatever. Rent it into the smart contract mm -hmm. through Ethereum. And, and the transaction would not be completed until our demands are met in the community. So it quantifies that social capital just by honoring who we are. Mm -hmm. And now it can put value points on whatever we want with that. Right, right. And what happens is once we once brothers and sisters begin to see how that works, mm -hmm. where they say, you know, and I use this example and I uh, and because, you know, I'm using a uh, uh, sister uh, Queen Mother Watson as an example. Mm -hmm. That's why I have down here the uh, the House of Watson family. Yep. So the House of Watson family. And they're going to be, be looking now as you're talking that they'll they'll be looking at this, you know. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because we don't have a, I don't think you have a visual for it. You know, it, well, we have it on, on paper, but it, it'll be up on the screen when. Okay. Um, okay. Let's see. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cool. It'll be up on the screen. Yeah. So you have uh, 
Um, so the House of Watson family, and we're not just talking about just members of Watson. We're talking about people that that the collective shareholders decide to vote into that that those shareholders. And when they they say these are the shareholders that actually control the release of that NFT to anybody. Right. And there may be certain circumstances where an NFT based on whatever the collective decides is a consensus because a consensus could be listed as 85 percent. Right. A consensus might be 90 percent. If you don't get a 90 percent consensus, then whatever Rock Financial wants to do or whatever, it's just not going to happen because you didn't get a consensus. Some might say, and they may say, well, depending upon the purpose of this collective, they may have it as low as majority rule. Yeah. But some, some, some tokens, some, some totems may be sacred. Mm-hmm. This is one we never want to touch. So you've got to have it at, say it's an it's a 85% consensus for everybody to agree to, to, to sell this uh, totem or 90% consensus and it stays 90% and all this we can control in a smart contract yeah. and it only drops down to something less than that every five years and mm-hmm. then and then there's only for a, a, win, a small window of time and when that vote can take place then it bounces back up to 95% now that said one of the restrictions of a smart contract once we put that code in place we can't change it. And that's also kind of through the blockchain. Yeah, it's locked blockchain. in. You can't, yeah, you can't you can't manipulate it. It it can't be broken even if the even if the FBI and the CIA step in and say change this. It'd be like right. Can't change it. Can't change it. You can't change, change it. it. Yeah. You know. And and that's the beauty of this. So, um I know we we spoke briefly, but what's your vision for how, how will you go about coding this? Uh, Detroit is different token uh, NFT and I'm going to have my friend Mike design it and it was good like as I say this whole month has been about the fundraising effort of the community uh, the community group the Detroit is different 501c3 so it's like I I, I spoke on this first and then I introduced and interviewed uh, Mike and and showed you some of his jewelry designs everybody in Detroit is different world and then Baba Malik came on as the original guest now you have my dad and today is my birthday so make sure you give to Detroit is different today. Uh, you know, dollar sign f- Detroit five hundred one C three. Give above two hundred and fifty to buy into this uh, NFT. Uh, but speak a little bit too. W- w- how will you design this? Code, Detroit right? is different. Yeah. Like, like how is that going to look? Because this is different than even the regular NFT. Yeah, and and understand everything we're talking about now, son. This is, you know, how you have something called a proof of concept, and then yeah. you actually have the, the uh, uh, eventually the the pilot, and then the code. Yep. We're just in concept right now. Mm-hmm. So, so the way I see it is when we get into when I get into the whole proof of concept, that's going to that's going to be the next step where I actually start playing around with the code because I haven't written any any the the, the code for Ethereum is called Solidity. I haven't written any solidity. I've looked at it. Mm-hmm. I looked at it, and it's a lot like what I code with with uh, when I'm putting up solutions for clients, you know. <laughs> but the way that I see, the way I see it, and that's what I kind of outlined here in, uh, with this illustration, is uh, although you see four boxes here that represent the smart smart contract app, it's all going to be one smart contract app. It's going to have multiple functions. There's going to be, I think I'm answering your question, a function. Here's the function to the, that that that. Uh, that puts out uh, a, 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 an announcement of a timeline to vote in some prospective members. 
mm-hmm. and you've got until this date to this date to vote. And if we reach a consensus of based on the participants, then these folks can get in or they won't get in. If they're if they're allowed given opportunity to get in, then they'll have to pay their ether, uh, whatever the uh, whatever. And and this is all by consensus too. I'm just saying this. Mm-hmm. Whatever the going rate for that ether is, whatever the equivalent of what if it was five dollars when we first started, now it's fifteen dollars. You got to pay fifteen dollars. But the family may say no. If you come in this way, you pay five dollars. Mm-hmm. If you're in Detroit, if you're a Detroiter, you only pay five dollars. How do we know they're Detroiters? Well, that's something for again the family to work out. The consensus has to work that out. How you define those rules? Uh, but but if you reflect those rules, I'm not coding any of that. That's just a matter of people saying no. We found out they're not even they, they, these folks live in Nevada. Right. Mm-hmm. They're front. They're a front company. You know, so we know, no, we're going to we're just not going to vote them in. Yeah. Right. So. So the, the 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 coding part of that is just simply enabling people within a specified time frame to vote. Now, whether or not you want to have one vote per share or one vote per person, mm-hmm. that's something that the consensus before we even start coding, we may come to an agreement that say for this particular totem, and that could vary from totem to totem. Yeah. This totem is going to be one one vote per share. This one over here might be one vote per uh, per person, right? Mm-hmm. So, so that's kind of the front end functionality. How do people get in there and become shareholders, right? When you, uh, uh, when you say, what if we want to now we're ready to, you know, it's like Rock Financial comes in and they do say, uh, hey, you know, we we see that this totem on open seas, we see that, hey, we can gain some influence using Rock Financial. Yeah, if Rock Financial, we yeah. want to do something on Livinois and whatever. Well, and, yeah. and, and, and one of the ways to, to get some goodwill mm-hmm. is to... Uh, is to basically purchase uh, purchase buy totem. into yeah buy into the totem right yep we know we can't be voted in because we're not Detroiters right yep but it would they're saying it'll show some good faith if you support our totem if you make a purchase of our totem yeah you can go out and see that totem right and so uh, that would also be voted on as well mm-hmm. it's like okay based on the pricing. The uh, you're saying, oh well, the going rate for something like this is X dollars. No, the going rate is going to be to whatever the consensus says. Yeah, and it could be the rec center, it could be the money, it could be whatever the community so forth says. It could be, um, you know, uh, pay for you know buy rules for every you know we need new rules on this whole row of houses or something Mm -hmm. like it's whatever the community consensus comes to that that will not be written in in the code as much as you just know that these are the times for the votes and the consensus Mm -hmm. and that's when things could change Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and we and 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 we could put some contingencies in there uh because once we're outside of the smart contract you know if if the parties like the rock financials of the world decide to play a game, yeah, we told you uh, that we would do the school thing, but you know, that's not working out. You know, we could, there may be some contingencies there. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe the, maybe the totem or the token isn't released directly to them. Yeah. It's released to a escrow account. Mm-hmm. And that escrow, it stays in that escrow account for like a few years. Right. Mm-hmm. And depending upon how y'all go, then, 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 uh, then we will bring that escrow 
uh, we'll bring that totem, totem back in, right? Uh, and all of that could be reflected in those contracts, yeah. right? In the written contracts, but in a smart contract, we make it pretty plain and clear. If these terms aren't met, and then how do we control whether those terms are met? By the way people vote. Yep. And so, so we're literally creating value from... Well, from ether, I guess, from nothing, right? Yeah, you know. it be, uh, and the value is the social capital and the it's consensus. The social capital, That's the consensus right. of these people. Hence, yes. the people. Like I always say, our value is in social capital, uh, right. because you know, and and I say that, but the extension is. We gather our social capital based on our character, our talent and our skill sets, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. because if you lack that, then so to our society, you aren't going to be seen and deemed with value. As we remember, as, as a people, as we wake up, mm -hmm. we have been taught that our value is based on tangible stuff. Like this is one of the, uh, uh, and, and you know, I'm guilty of this like everybody else, you know, because a lot, even brothers and sisters that, hey, you know, it's all about land. We got to get land. You know, it's about material stuff. Our value, what the, what the creator is blessed in us is our creativity, mm -hmm. our vision, all these gifts we have as a people, collectively and individually. And all of those those things, our vision, our our creativity, our uh, uh, ability to the way we communicate, our connection and rhythm with the universe creates a synergy that gives us all this energy when we tap into that. Yeah. When we don't tap into that, that's when we don't seem to have the energy to do what we need to do. Yeah. We're waking up to that now. The people that have oppressed us all these years, they've always known that. And they see that we're waking up. That's why you see all this crazy stuff happening in the government right now. What we're doing right here, we're, we're, we're going to tap into that consciousness. And particularly, I want young people, if we do this and set it up as we do this, young people will begin to understand mm -hmm. this. We create our value. We create yeah. our value. We are the source of all supply for us. Yeah. And that's what we're beginning to learn. When you think about our evidence of our connection to the universe, and I know I'm getting, again, esoteric and all of that, but this all ties in. I know it's hard for people to see, but you'll, we'll see someday. If not us, our grandchildren will. It's, it's connected in such a way, evidence of that would be the equivalent of those giant kale trees that brother Yakini and his family grew in December. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you saw those photos on Facebook. Yeah, yeah. I mean, kale trees. That's mm -hmm. because our ancestors in nature and us, when we vibrate at that level, nature is waiting on us mm -hmm. with that. The way I'm speaking right now, I'm tapping into like the, my abilities as a coder. People say, "Oh, you know, hey, this brother's a genius. You know, he could be a genius." That's not. It's nothing. That this is. This is just a vibration that I was blessed to connect into mm -hmm. through our ancestors and the creator that allows this. But we see evidence of that all the time. You are evidence of what's happening here. Mm -hmm. And and the ability of us to communicate and see this vision as and we see it from one perspective and we're going to bring it into reality. That is our source of value. That is our source of wealth. 
That's great. I'm going to close it there. Thank you so much for uh, breaking this down. We're going to definitely get you back eventually, and we'll tell more of the story because there's other cool stories. I want to do a whole series with my dad uh, coming up sometime next year and other things. Because as you see, uh, when people think uh, business and economics, I have a niche for this, too. I hope we didn't go too much over your head. But some of this (laughs) stuff, we got to get a little over your head to introduce to you. Um, But like we say, thank you so much. Thanks for giving to Detroit is different. The community group is starting. Uh, A lot of this is possible through my social network of you, my friend Mike, uh, Youssef, Baba Malik. Like this month is a classic example of black men, a part of my life I look to uh, that. You know, I can bounce things off of and make sure you have that rich circle because it is through our talent and our creativity that most of this can come. Remember, give to December 30th. Dollar sign Detroit is. uh, Wait, I'm I'm messing up. Dollar sign. Or, or as, as I say, cash tag, as they say, <laughs> Detroit 501c3. Thank you so much, Dad. Oh, you're welcome, son. And then My I don't pleasure. know if you want to give contact information or whatever, but I, I, I'll stop it right here with my yeah, dad. Right, Most I'm of my good. dad's clients, uh, as you can see, are like, you know, you, you have to be in a world of trouble. So if you <laughs> if you probably or, need my dad, <laughs> you'll find out how to get to yeah, my dad. You'll find out. Right. Yep. <laughs> Peace. All right, brother. Thank you. Let me talk to you about Detroit is Different, the community group. The community group is the project effort where we're going to be doing the a lot of studio project for outdoor podcasting, the gardening and the performance. Make sure you give like everybody else that's given so far to this great campaign. We got $885. I want to get to $2,500. I got faith. We'll get there with your support so we can stay creative. Keep this thing in the summer. Keep this thing outside and keep this thing going. Detroit is different. It's educational, informational, and also entertaining. Remember, when you give to Detroit is Different community group, you're giving to a neighborhood, you're giving to yourself, and you're giving to the platform for black voices to truly express what's on our hearts and minds. So give today to the Detroit is Different community group through PayPal or Cash App. Make sure that you're supporting because Detroit is different.